and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Pork Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 184th episode of the Nauticast, titled Trial by Fire, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Arya 6, in which the legendary Beric Dondarrion finally returns to the stage to hold accountable the person responsible for all the war crimes we have seen inflicted on the small folk. And that person, of course, is Sandor Clegane. Nah, this can't be right. I'm reading the wrong cue card. Manu, you handed me the wrong card. Who's really on trial? Well, I mean, they got the last name right, so that's kind of halfway there. So, I mean, what difference does it really make? They're all they're all basically the same, right? Lannister, Service, Bannerman. So close, and yet so far. And we're uh, very excited to have on a special guest for this episode. I've been looking forward to this for a while. We got uh, Ruben, a.k.a. Lies and Perfidy, on the Nauticast today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Hello, I'm Tywin Lannister. <laughs> oh, hey, Emmett, I think I found your cue card. <laughs> the long con, we finally got Tywin on the cast. Yes, yeah, it's a great episode. Um, hi, I'm Ruben Poling. You, know, uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Lies and Perfidy. Uh, sometime fantasy writer, sports writer, political organizer. Uh, been sharing uh, a significant portion of my brain with Westeros for many, many years. Uh, First-time caller, long-time listener, and absolutely delighted to be on the Nauticast podcast. Sharing a portion of your brain with Westeros is a wonderful way of putting it. I think I'm going to steal that from now on. It's, you know, it's an invasive, it's like a virus. It's you're, I just, have, you're just sharing it. I have seven brain cells and therefore the seven kingdoms, and that's about it. <laughs> what's, a, what's a one-to-one ratio? It's perfect. So our our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all published books, the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, the histories, the interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. We got a question this week from our patron James of House Keen. Should we view the House of the Dragon show as canon for A Song of Ice and Fire, filling in the blanks where the books leave questions unanswered, or is it entirely separate? And a second question, could the Dance of the Dragons have been avoided if Viserys had named another hand besides Otto Hightower, specifically Lionel Strong or Corlys Valerian? Well, to answer the first one for myself, it's canon when I feel like it, and it's not when I don't feel like it. That's, that's how House of the Dragon works, works canonically for me, but, but what do you two think? Second question is actually a little easier for me. Um, this dance absolutely could have been avoided. Uh, Otto was the driving force behind it. Um, but uh, if Lionel Strong or Corliss Valerian had been handed the king instead, we just we would have had a different civil war a little further down the line with a different cast of characters. Uh, to steal a phrase from uh, Gretchen Felker Martin, very incisive critic, uh, they're Kardashians with nuclear bombs. Your peace was never an option. Um, and then as far as the, the first question, I, I think you're correct, Emmett, that like when it is convenient, it is canon. Um, but, <laughs> you know, the show, the showrunners talk about it as an alternate canon. I think George has expressed that too. Um, and to me, there's a, a really fine meta narrative of just what, what it could have been, right? Of exploring the roads not taken, of the possibility of, well, if this had happened, could it have been covered up? I don't know. Some things, you know, the the true telling of of uh, Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole. Sure, yeah, you could you could assume that was what happened, and no one knew. Uh, Renice busting up through the dragon pit. Little harder to keep it out of the books. So, 
Yeah, I think it's a moving target, um, and you should fill in the blanks if you like what you saw on the show better than you like the blanks. Yeah, I think there's a certain elasticity to the canon here, and I have a lot of uh, advantages here because playing Metal Gear Solid and reading a lot of Marvel comics, I've had to massage my own canon out of a lot of different materials over the years. I think I just treat the two different things, the book and the show, as in conversation with each other, and they can be used to highlight or uh, intuit other things about each other. Like, I think something like the Lenor fake death is something that you can kind of see how the show is able to play in the margins of the book without necessarily taking away and possibly really even adding to it. Um, so I kind of like use them to possibly learn things about the other, but I kind of still treat them as separate. Um, there are certain things that you just can't get around. I think the they would not have screwed up the ages of Alicent and Rhaenyra. Like, I think that's like very obviously there's one canon for that and the other, but I think it's very interesting to think of House of the Dragon as this is the story that a bunch of men laid down based off of secondary sources that were also men and what kind of advantages it may serve the myth that is the realm to have two women to be blamed for the civil war instead of all the, you know, strapping young warrior men who fill out the ideals and the songs and the stories. That's what makes the question of canon so interesting because Fire and Blood was kind of built around that idea and those blank spaces as, as just as a concept more than character drama itself. It was uh, poking at how trustworthy the sources were for anything you were reading. And like Ruben said, it's a moving target. I think I'm comfortable saying that what happened with Lenor is probably not canon to the books, but it's also not contradiction. Not, you know, there's nothing that is ruined in the books because of it. And I, I do think it adds a lot to the show. I think the the Rainus Dragon Pit entrance, as spectacular as it was, yeah, that's got that's got nothing to do with the books, and that is something they're going to have to write around. I think for the future of the show, in terms of what where the Dragon Pit goes, but I mean that's that's easy enough to handle. Oh, I just wanted to see you know something you said, Manu, about um, you know the the ages and stuff like that did make me think about like reading a lot of medieval history um, where we don't have records of certain people's ages. No one's really sure exactly how old Eleanor of Aquitaine was when she died, for instance. You can make a guess within a few years, but um, there's a there's a historicity um, to, to House of the Dragon and to Fire and Blood that's obviously like an integral part of the project. And I think it is, you can, the further out you are from the events, the more flexibility you have, you know? So it's, it's hard to look at... Um, House of the Dragon as filling in canon uh, for something that was written based on, you know, primary sources and was at most, what, 200 years removed? Less than that. But you can think of it as this is the retelling of the uh, the Dance of the Dragons hundreds of years later in Westeros, um, where things have gotten even more confused. And you're like, oh, man, this is, I mean... This happened, you know, 170 years before the, you know, the reign of King Brandon I. So who knows? Exactly. You can see even within A Song of Ice and Fire, you can see that already happening. I love the song that they sing at the Purple Wedding where they they just cast Stannis as just like Scar from the Lion King. And they the incredible bit where they have Renly regret 
fighting against the Lannisters from beyond the grave and come back to fight for Joffrey and give one sweet farewell kiss to Marjorie. And like Tyrion is just sitting there ready to just explode. But it's like, but that's brilliant. Like you can see it because that's, that's the narrative that makes it look like the Lannisters were always going to win and this was ordained. And so that's going to be the canon. And that's what happened to Damon and Rhaenyra and Alicent and, and everyone else. It's, that's, that's already happened by the time we start our story in this universe. And uh, yeah, I agree with Ruben for the dance question. If you're going to alter that period of history by swapping out one character, it is Otto. Like, I don't think, you know, obviously things spiral out of control as they do on the show, but he's he's the closest thing to a central antagonist in that whole situation and probably the closest thing to a prime mover also. So yeah, swap him out, a lot changes, although also agreed, you are just kicking the can down the road. Uh, eventually, I think the the, the built-up tensions between, not just within House Targaryen, but, but between House Targaryen and their vassals, I think, would would take the form of some kind of explosive war eventually. Uh, and then those particular personalities made it exactly what it was. Yeah, I don't have much to add with that. Um, I know our friend Sean Collins forwards that if perhaps he had named a different heir, specifically naming Aegon to the heir right away, um, that war could have been avoided. And I, I can maybe see that, but... That possibly also only kicks the can down the road a bit, but I think it might be a little more secure than, say, passing through Rhaenyra just because of the inherent uh, patriarchal concerns amongst the Westerosi High Lords. Yeah. Although at that point, you just kind of have to have Damon killed. <laughs> Damon, Damon is the other fly in the ointment that you kind of have to... Uh, that's what I. That's something I always loved about the story is how much of all the strategy kind of comes down to, well, we can't have that guy in charge, so what... what, what torturously convoluted end run can we do to make sure this doesn't end with King Damon first of his name? And then you end up, you know, end up doing way worse things in the process, as you do. So, uh, thank you to James of House Keen for the question. If you'd like to ask questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. Head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast ASOIAF where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a bunch more benefits besides. But, um... On to the chapter, a chapter I've been looking forward to for, for quite some time. Let's let's jump into the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Arya 6. As the chapter starts, Arya is blind. No, not literally. That'll wait for Bravos. She's got a hood on her head, and when Harwin pulls it off, she finds herself inside a hollow hill. There's a big old fire in the middle of the space, and large tree roots snaking their way through the stone walls all around. Arya sees people stepping out from hidden tunnels, and notices one guy sitting all alone where the weirwood roots are thickest. Eh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Gendry gets dehooded as well, and asks the same question the reader is asking. Where the hell are we? Lem answers. An old place, deep and secret. A refuge where neither wolves nor lions come prowling. The mention of wolves gets Arya's attention, as she thinks back to her dream earlier in the book when she warged into Nymeria to take out the bloody mummers who were chasing her from Harrenhal. Maybe keep that one to yourself, Arya. Anyway, she can't really get a sense of how big the cave is, just that it's big and full of people, all of whom are staring at her. Greenbeard points out someone talking to Tom by the fire. Here's the wizard skinny squirrel. You'll get your answers now. Arya looks, but she can't believe that dude is the infamous priest, Thoros of Myr. She remembers him from King's Landing as fat and bald. This guy is skinny with shaggy hair. Whoever he is, he starts walking toward them. But then he spots the mad huntsman, who turned out to be a totally average-looking guy. Go figure. His hounds have been more threatening than him back at Stony Sept, when the Brotherhood made him an offer for his prisoner that he couldn't refuse. Specifically, they threatened to shoot him in the face. The mad huntsman agreed not like he had much choice, and they had bound and hooded and even noosed his prisoner. He's still dangerous, though. 
Arya can sense it. Thoros, if that is his real name, asks the huntsman how he took his prisoner. It was the hounds, of course. They're the most competent ones here. Speaking of hounds, Thoros pulls off the hood to reveal that the prisoner is... Sandor Clegane, everyone's favorite not a knight. Sandor says that Thoros looks awfully familiar. Yeah, no wonder, Thoros says. I used to kick your ass in the melees. Thoros says he also used to shave his head to express humility, but that was always bullshit. Only now has he truly discovered his faith. The Lord of Light has woken in my heart. Many powers long asleep are waking, and there are forces moving in the land. I've seen them in my flames. Sandor could not possibly care less about all that. He's more curious as to why Thoros is hanging out with all these losers. Thoros says they're his brothers, but Sandor is equally unimpressed by that. And when Lem Lemoncloak says they have his life in their hands, Sandor shoots back, Best wipe the shit off your fingers then. Eh, I've missed him. Sandor asks the Brotherhood how long they've been hiding in this cave. Angai tells him to ask Vargo Hote, or Roos Bolton, or his own brother Gregor if they've been hiding. Sandor says they look more like swineherds than soldiers. Some of us were, another man replies, before the war. And then Arya hears another voice. And this is such good shit, I just have to read it word for word. When we left King's Landing, we were men of Winterfell, and men of Derry, and men of Blackhaven, Mallory men and wild men. We were knights and squires and men-at-arms, lords and commoners, bound together only by our purpose. The voice came from the man seated amongst the weirwood roots halfway up the wall. Six score of us set out to bring the king's justice to your brother. The speaker was descending the tangle of steps toward the floor. Six score brave men and true, led by a fool in a starry cloak. A scarecrow of a man, he wore a ragged black cloak speckled with stars, and an iron breastplate dinted by a hundred battles. A thicket of red-gold hair hid most of his face, save for a bald spot above his left ear, where his head had been smashed in. More than eighty of our company are dead now, but others have taken up the swords that fell from their hands. When he reached the floor, the outlaws moved aside to let him pass. One of his eyes was gone, Arya saw, the flesh about the socket scarred and puckered, and he had a dark black ring all around his neck. With their help, we fight on, as best we can, for Robert and the realm. George R. R. Martin, everyone. One of the best to ever do it. Sandor wants to read back the transcript to the part where the friendly neighborhood scarecrow man mentioned Robert. Jack B. Lucky acknowledges that Ned sent them out, but he did so in Robert's name, so they're Robert's men. Sandor finally points out the obvious. Robert is dead. Very dead. Extremely most sincerely dead. How do you fight for a dead man, exactly? Well, we're fighting for his realm, the scarecrow man says, and now we finally get his name. Dondarian. No, that can't be Beric Dondarian, Arya thinks. Jane Poole had a crush on Beric Dondarian. He's supposed to be hot. This guy looks like a corpse who got beat up by another corpse. But then Arya sees the sigil on his chest, the purple lightning bolt of House Dondarian. Meanwhile, Sandor is busy edgelording, as he likes to do, saying the realm is nothing but rocks and rivers. And anyway, Robert never really cared about anything he couldn't bang. You guys are just a more pretentious version of the Bloody Mummers. Several members of the Brotherhood are ready to kill Sandor on the spot for that little remark, but Thoros declares that they are brothers, unlike the Mummers, and Thomas Evans finally says the thing. The Brotherhood without banners. Tom Sevenstrings plucked a string. The Knights of the Hollow Hill. Sandor is willing to concede that Beric is a knight, but the rest of the island of misfit toys? Nah, I don't think so. Beric reminds Sandor that any knight can make a knight. We're a fellowship, only, you know, mostly hobbits. 
Sandor begs for death if that means an end to the lecture, and once again, descriptions do no justice, and I just gotta read it. You'll die soon enough, dog, promised Thoros, but it shan't be murder, only justice. Aye, said the Mad Huntsman, and a kinder fate than you deserve for all your kind have done. Lions, you call yourselves. At Sherer and the Mummer's Ford, girls of six and seven years were raped, and babes still on the breast were cut in two while their mothers watched. No lion ever killed so cruel. I was not at Sherer, nor the Mummer's Ford, the hound told him. Lay your dead children at some other door. Thoros answered him. Do you deny that House Clegane was built upon dead children? I saw them lay Prince Egon and Princess Rhaenys before the Iron Throne. By rights, your arm should bear two bloody infants in place of those ugly dogs. The hound's mouth twitched. Do you take me for my brother? Is being born Clegane a crime? Murder is a crime. Who did I murder? Lord Lothar Mallory and Sir Gladden Wilde, said Harwin. My brothers, Lister and Lennox, declared Jack be lucky. Goodman Beck and Mudge the Miller's son from Donalwood, an old woman called from the shadows. Maddyman's widow, who lives so sweet, added Greenbeard. Them septons at Sludgy Pond. Sir Andrew Charlton, his squire Lucas Root, every man, woman, and child in Fieldstone and Mousestone Mill. Lord and Lady Deddings, that was so rich. Tom Sevenstrings took up the count. Allen of Winterfell, Joth Quickbow, Little Matt and his sister Randa, Anvil Rin, Sir Ormond, Sir Dudley, Pate of Morty, Pate of Lancewood, Old Pate, and Pate of Shermer's Grove. Blind Will the Whittler, Goodwife Mary, Mary the Whore, Becca the Baker, Sir Raymond Derry, Lord Derry, Young Lord Derry, The Bastard of Bracken, Fletcher Will, Harshly, Goodwife Nala, Enough! The hound's face was tight with anger. You're making noise. His names mean nothing. Who were they? People, said Lord Beric. People, great and small, young and old, good people and bad people, who died on the points of Lannister spears or saw their bellies opened by Lannister swords. Sandor says he didn't kill all those people. Thoros counters that he serves the Lannisters. But Sandor wonders why he should be held responsible for every crime committed under a lion banner. Finally, Sandor gets to launch into his tight five about how knights are just the worst. A knight's a sword with a horse. The rest, the vows and the sacred oils and the ladies' favors. The silk ribbons tied round the sword. Maybe the sword's pretty with ribbons hanging off it, but it'll kill you just as dead. Oh, bugger your ribbons and shove your swords up your asses. I'm the same as you. The only difference is I don't lie about what I am. So kill me. Don't call me a murderer while you stand there telling each other your shit don't stink. You hear me? Then Arya speaks up. Remember Arya? She's still here. She accuses Sandor of killing Micah way back in book one. Sandor doesn't know who she is at first, let alone Micah, but then he remembers her as, quote, the brat who tossed Joff's pretty sword in the river. Beric bangs his imaginary gavel and asks Sandor how he responds to the charge of child murder. Sandor says that Micah had it coming for spilling royal blood. When Arya says that's a lie, Sandor says it wasn't his place to question Joffrey's word. Oh yeah, I was only following orders. The Nuremberg defense is sure to win over this crowd. Beric has a quick sidebar with Thoros before sentencing Sandor to trial by battle, so that R'hllor can make the call. Sandor, after wondering for a minute whether his ears are working, asks if Beric is a fool or a madman. Neither, Beric says, but a just lord. If you win the fight, you leave. Arya thinks Sandor will laugh at that right before he does so. Who is brave enough or dumb enough to take on the Hound? Lem? Greenbeard? The Huntsman? Why not Arya herself? But no. It's Beric himself who steps forward to duel. Arya remembers all the stories about how Beric Dondarrion is basically immortal and can only hope they're true. 
The huntsman frees the hound, and he asks for sword and armor. Beric agrees to the former, but not to the latter, calling for Ned to undo his own breastplate. Wait, Ned? No, it's not Papa Stark's ghost. Just some blonde kid you don't have to worry about. He won't be coming up again. Gendry says a whole bunch of Hail Marys when they get a good look at Beric without his armor. His ribs are visible, and his torso is covered in wounds. His squire brings his sword, and Thoros gives Sandor his, after making sure there are archers standing by to fill him full of holes if he goes after anyone but Beric. Sandor steps forward to fight, but me and old Uncle Thoros won't let anyone eat Thanksgiving dinner until we've all prayed. The Brotherhood go through the Relore equivalent of the Lord's Prayer, ending with, The night is dark and full of terrors. Sandor, having decided he wasn't edgy enough earlier, says he's the terror here, and he hopes Beric's god will be nice to him when they meet up soon. In response, Beric cuts himself with his sword, covers the sword in his blood, and then the sword catches fire. Uh, what were you saying, Sandor? Can't hear you over all the metal. Gendry says about 40 more Hail Marys, while Sandor just tells Beric and Thoros to go to hell. As the Brotherhood boo the Hound like Phillies fans in the World Series, Beric himself just waits. He moves only when Sandor does, and the duel begins. The flames dance, burning brighter with every blow. Arya asks Gendry if it's wildfire, but he says it's not. It's something different. Something magic, Arya decides. Beric starts to take the advantage, pressing Sandor back against the fire pit as his followers cheer him on. Arya sees that Sandor is sweating heavily and looks afraid. Naturally, she couldn't be happier. Eventually, Sandor's shield catches fire. He knocks it aside, but not before the flames spread to his arm. The Brotherhood begin to chant, Guilty! Guilty! over and over again, and Arya joins in. Sandor gathers his strength for a final desperate blow. And when Lord Beric tries to block, his sword snaps in two. And Sandor's sword cuts deep into his chest. Beric kneels and falls. Arya can only think of poor Micah, but then she hears Sandor crying for help with a voice like a child's. Thoros orders one of the Brotherhood to tend to Sandor's wounds, while he, and several others, usher Beric out of sight. The Mad Huntsman wants to take Sandor back to the Crow Cages regardless. Arya loves this plan, she's excited to be a part of it. Harwin tries to explain that R'hllor has declared Sandor to be innocent, but Arya doesn't care about Thoros' god any more than Sandor did. She grabs Greenbeard's dagger, dodges Gendry, and makes her run for the Hound. The sight of him stops her. The burns on his arms are horrific. She reminds herself that she hates him, and demands he confess to killing Micah. Sandor does, confessing also to watching Ned's execution, and watching the other Kingsguard beat Sansa. No one even asked you about that, my dude. Where's your lawyer, anyway? Lem takes the dagger away from Arya, and one last time, I turn it over to the text. You go to hell, hound, she screamed at Sandor Clegane in helpless, empty-handed rage. You just go to hell! He has, said a voice scarce stronger than a whisper. When Arya turned, Lord Beric Dondarrion was standing behind her, his bloody hand clutching Thoros by the shoulder. And that is a storm of swords, Arya 6. And it's got to stand back and just soak it in for a second. But now, Reuben, what, did you, what do you think of this one? I fucking love this chapter on uh, just about every level. I first read Storm of Swords in like 2003 uh, when I was in high school. Got a gigantic hardcover from the library. I picked it up after school and I remember, I'm pretty sure I had meant to just read a few chapters and walk home. And I ended up reading like half the book and just staying there until they kicked me out of the library. And if I recall right, one of the main reasons I couldn't stop was trying to get to the next Arya chapter uh, because of this slow build that you guys have covered, uh, you know, in the first five chapters towards Beric Dondarrion, the Lightning Lord. And 
you know, that build actually started in Clash, but, I mean, Storm really kicked it off, uh, starting with the introduction of the the initial three Brotherhood members, uh, and just all the energy they brought with them, the expanding cast, and all, you know, we had the, the grim, muddy churn of Clash of Kings, of Arya's chapters, just getting grimmer and more, you know, very good, but just, uh, uh, very monochrome, um, and occasionally red. Uh, and after that, she's caught up by these roguish outlaws with colorful names and evocative stories and their own traveling soundtrack, uh, and a legendary leader, a legendary leader with weirdest of all a claim to actual heroism, uh, which you don't find very often in Storm of Swords. So when we finally meet this heroic duo, the Lightning Lord and the Red Priest hidden in their own custom Batcave, uh, there's a lot riding on that, and George sticks the landing. He delivers in ways that I, you know, I did not see coming when I was sitting in the library, you know, telling myself, all right, just one more chapter, then I'll go home. We made it. We're finally here. The slow trickle of previous Aria chapters is gone. The dam has broken, and we get flooded with the personal, the political, and the mystical. At the center of all that is Beric Dondarrion and his right-hand priest, Thoros Amir. They were conscripted early to this edition of the Game of Thrones by Ned Stark, sent forth into war under the banners of Robert Baratheon, two men long since gone from this tale. But in defeat, Beric and his men gained something else. They gained clarity of purpose, they gained the favor of the small folk, they gained brotherhood. A political rebirth of will, the feudal contract given flesh, to protect the common people from harm. But don't forget who's underfoot for all this. Arya Stark, who finally gets to confront Sandor Clegane with the murder of Micah, a devastating trauma still scarring the younger Stark daughter. This chapter packs a wallop, one of George's most robust and well-rounded. So when we talked about this chapter and this part of Storm of Swords in general, we, we keep referencing the Fireworks Factory. And I was thinking maybe we should explain what that is for the non-Simpsons fans out there, those <laughs> poor unfortunate souls. The Simpson kids watch an in-universe cartoon called Itchy and Scratchy, and Homer gets hired to voice the cool, new, edgy character Poochie that no one asked for and everyone hates. As the kids watch Poochie's first episode, Itchy and Scratchy are on their way to the Fireworks Factory, with all the colorful mayhem that implies... Until Poochie interrupts to introduce himself in the most cringe way imaginable. Bart's dorky little sidekick, Millhouse, gets tired and eventually whines, when are they going to get to the fireworks factory? So that's the fireworks factory. It's what we call anything that seems awesome in the distance, and then you wait for it, and wait for it, and wait for it. In unrelated news, George is now three quarters of the way through the Winds of Winter. He's just got to add the Poochie POV chapters, and he'll be all done. Is, uh, is Sandor Poochie? Because I keep thinking that. I was in terms in terms of attitude. I could see him with like the hat and the skateboard. I guess in terms of like character introduced out of nowhere who ruins things. I guess a lot of people would probably say Euron, but they're wrong about that. So we'll just let them sit out there and be wrong. But yeah, Itchy and Scratchy, you know, they never make it to the fireworks factory, but Arya does. This is one of the highlights of A Storm of Swords, and it's my favorite Arya chapter in the whole story, bar none. And there are so many reasons why. Like you said, Manu, this chapter is a landmark in terms of the politics, and the magic, and how it fits into Arya's character arc. It's like a diamond. You can turn it this way and that way. Every facet of it will catch the light and shine. It's basically perfect. But I don't want to just appreciate the craftsmanship from a detached perspective, because what really makes this chapter special for me is how emotional and exciting it is. 
It hooks you with the mysterious atmosphere, it inspires you with all the rousing rhetoric, before complicating that rhetoric in a really powerful way, and then blowing it all up with one of the most vivid and intense visual spectacles in A Song of Ice and Fire. If I had to summarize the whole series, like recommend it on the basis of one chapter alone, I think this is probably the one. As Emmett mentioned in the recap, opening an Arya chapter in the dark immediately makes us think of the blind girl chapter from Dance with Dragons. It even had me thinking of Brand 7 from A Clash of Kings, how after the direwolf intro paragraphs, we are brought back into the darkness of the Winterfell crypts, disori disorienting us especially after Bran had been off page and presumed dead for the last third of the book. Growing accustomed to the blackness honestly makes me think of how I feel every time I start a new A Song of Ice and Fire chapter, since so many open in media res. Often we are plunged headfirst into a new scenario, and we the reader have to feel things out before we realize what's really going on, give our eyes some time to adjust. This chapter's opening shines a light on that method. And it's also evocative of Lothlorien and Henneth Anun or the Window on the West in Lord of the Rings, locations that Frodo and his company had to be blindfolded before being led into. Uh, it also brings to mind for me uh, Tad Williams' Memory, Sorrow, and Thorns series, which I'm actually rereading right now. Um, big influence on George, he's talked about. Uh, and yeah, it is just lousy with revelatory caves. You gotta have one, or two, or three, or ten. It's got like 30. It's good, but man, <laughs> we spend a lot of time learning things in the dark in that series. And the way this chapter opens, it also says something about where Arya is right now, mentally and emotionally. She's getting used to the darkness. A life of violent alienation doesn't feel like an aberration anymore. It feels like the norm. It's the status quo. And on one hand, Beric and Thoros try to lift her out of that by acting as a very literal light in the darkness. On the other hand, she is ultimately disappointed in them as well, and winds up, in this book at least, having more in common with Sandor, wearing the darkness like armor so it can't be used against you. Yeah, that's kind of a fun, a fun framework for reading Arya. Uh, her chapters are, among other things, an ongoing philosophical argument, and the winner gets her soul. And the Brotherhood makes some pretty strong points uh, throughout their appearance, especially in this chapter, but ultimately they've got other things going on, uh, they're not really ready to raise a child, and also wolves don't care about who's got the legal authority. Underneath the Hollow Hill, the Cave of the Brotherhood Without Banners will have every rereader thinking of Bloodraven's Cave. Here, Arya describes the Weirwood roots as huge white roots twisting through them like a thousand pale snakes. Meanwhile, in Bran 2, A Dance with Dragons, it goes, Bran saw great white snakes slithering in and out of the earth around him. A very deliberate use of the same words, white snakes, to give both the werewoods and the cave itself an animated quality, that it's alive. The way the caverns disappear into the dark, winding and twisting, with eyes and peoples emerging from them is also another similarity. Here, it is just men, but in Bloodraven's cave, those eyes peering back are that of the children of the forest. And the Brotherhood themselves have ties to the children as well, as we will see with the Ghost of Highheart. And even when Bran first spies the children in A Dance with Dragons, the first thing he says is, they're Arya's height. The Hollow Hill is also a term George reuses in that Bran dance chapter to describe Bloodraven's cave, and all this goes back to a line from Bran 4 in A Game of Thrones when he's listening to old Nan's stories. Yet here and there in the fastness of the woods, the children still lived in their wooden cities and hollow hills. Yeah, and the Hollow Hills, I want to talk about that for a second. Uh, 
The concept and the phrase are both uh, reminiscent and evocative of the Celtic mythology they're drawn from. Um, the real Hollow Hills, or at least I should say the mundane Hollow Hills, uh, who can say what's real, uh, were burial chambers used by ancient Celtic cultures, uh, just, you know, hollow tombs with mounds built over them. And they were believed to be this living link between the world and this world and the next. It was the passageway between worlds, which was why you put your dead there. And then over time, as uh, Celtic cultures assimilated and Christianized, and these burial mounds literally just became part of the landscape, echoes of the idea remained. This other world beneath the hills. Where did the old gods go? Where did the she go? The old legends and the fairies and so forth, uh, they went in, into the hollow hills. Art imitates life, the children of the forest, and the first men who knew them. They're a big part um, of George's grab bag of cool Celtic shit, and we see that reflected here in the hollow hill being a place of some real fireworks magic. Yeah, all of that just feeds into the idea of putting us in the proper headspace for this chapter, a setting literally ripped out of the fairy tales. The chapter sits at the intersection of so many legends, from those of Robin Hood and his merry men, to Norse mythology, to that of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, to the Celtic myths you were talking about. That's a great connection to, uh, yeah, Blood Raven's Cave and Dance. I was just thinking of, of what he tells Bran, don't fear the darkness. Darkness is your mother's milk. Darkness will make you strong, which is exactly what's going on with Arya at the start of this chapter. And that, that approach you're both talking about, where George stuffs, like, every story he loves into a blender and hits puree, it's really effective, I think, because it's both sophisticated and childish. Like, it appeals to your brain and your gut at the same time. Because on one hand, the author is using Barrack specifically as a vessel to point out the common reference points of all these stories. It's designed to get you thinking about how stories borrow from other stories and are changed to appeal to different audiences, and how different cultures can come together to make new ones, especially in storytelling. I think that's why Barak Dondarrion, Revenant of the Red God, greatly resembles Bloodraven, Avatar of the Old Gods, as Manu will get into more later. But on the other hand, this postmodern approach, I think it's also designed to make you remember what stories were like when you were younger, before you developed any of those critical faculties. That opening line about Arya emerging from the darkness makes this chapter feel like a dream. It's something that happens while her eyes are closed. It's like she she's still in Winterfell, and she listened to Old Nan run through all her stories, and then as she slept, all those greatest hits reassembled themselves in her subconscious to form one mashup image. Like, that's what we see in, in The Nutcracker, that's what happens in The Wizard of Oz, it's just Arya going, you were there, and you were there. All of which is to say that there is a, a deep, almost primal familiarity to this chapter. It feels like something you've read before, and it's supposed to. It's such a great two-hander. I mean, we're going to get into, there's a lot of legal and political sophistication and that deep philosophical argument we referenced, but we're introduced to it with this, like, atavistic myth, the, the ill full of magic. Yeah, even though the Hollow Hill is steeped in fantasy, it is a very real political refuge too in story, a place where neither lions nor wolves come prowling. It's an oasis in the Riverlands, a country made destitute by the war raging between Lannister and Stark. It's the physical manifestation of what the Brotherhood Without Banners are, sworn to the dead king, but serving the small folk who get caught underfoot when the lords play the Game of Thrones. Which immediately puts Arya into a difficult position, because she can't be comfortable staying neutral between the wolves and the lions. 
And it's significant that Lem describes the sides of the war like that. It's not Starks versus Lannisters, no, it's lions versus wolves. And that adds to the fairy tale atmosphere of the chapter. It also frames the factions as predatory. But more than anything, it ties directly into Arya's story, because she immediately flashes back to the warging dream she had earlier in the book. So, does she belong here? Can she find a new family among people who are at war with her old family? Arya was Nymeria in that dream. She wasn't a metaphorical wolf like the wolf on their banners, no, she was a literal wolf, which also ties into the complicated realities of their hosts. What's the truth versus the bard's truth about Beric Dondarrion and Thoros of Mir, Rallor's dream team? No offense to Stannis and Melisandre or Victarion and Mercuro. Okay, some offense. It's a very thin tag team division. <laughs> uh, it's not a, not a deep bench, I'll say that much. And you know, this is one of the toughest things uh, about Arya's story, I think, uh, on reread, that George is pulling off um, with the Brotherhood, introducing her to a faction who has the best claim on the moral high ground that we've yet seen. You know, we we don't know yet exactly where Arya is going to end up at the end of Aeswath, but we can guess from the show that it's going to be more wolfish than not. So you're introducing this fundamentally good-hearted and well-meaning, if insanely traumatized kid, to the closest thing to the good guys apart from her family, which, you know, even more so than her family in some ways, they're just not her family. And then he has to separate her from, you know, from Harwin and from everyone else so that her story can continue. Uh, and doing that is a, a hell of a trick. Um, we'll get there as to how he does it, but, you know, he starts by playing with her expectations, uh, you know, introducing things that are not what they seem. Arya first sees Thoros Amir, the quote-unquote wizard, who in King's Landing was hardy and hale and bald when we first met him in Sansa 2 of A Game of Thrones. Here he is thin, full of hair, almost looking like worn leather. He is less, but somehow so much more at the same time. The Lord of Light is a flame in him, a fire kindled on the embers of the War of the Five Kings. One of the major themes of this chapter is appearances versus reality. Look with your eyes, as Sirio told Arya, and when the chapter starts, her eyes are adjusting to the light. Her inner eye, her mind's eye, is adjusting to new realities that don't entirely line up with surface appearances. And George is encouraging the reader to make that same adjustment of our expectations. Arya is repeatedly taken aback by how people look in contrast with their reputations or the images created around them. Just look at the Mad Huntsman. A name like that, you're picturing an absolute bruiser, a villain with style to spare. Instead, he's the most ordinary-looking guy imaginable. He's a middle-aged man with a weak chin and a receding hairline. Someone who would never stand out from the crowd unless you already knew he was called the Mad Huntsman. Which is, of course, exactly why he calls himself that. Names have power. They distort your senses, imposing a fantastical projection onto the real thing. It's like having double vision. And this is a, a running theme in Arya's chapters, right? I mean, as far back as class, she's taking different names, forgetting who she is, having to reassert her identity. Uh, you know, a, a chapter or two ago, she had to do it with Harwin, be Arya for the first time in, you know, what probably felt to her like years. Um, and she's kind of learning the power of names and the power of identities from two different sides, something that we can guess is going to serve her extremely well uh, when she becomes some percentage of a faceless man. 
And the same process applies to Thoros, even more so because Arya saw the Red Priest back in King's Landing, and he looks totally different now. He used to be fat, now he's thin. He used to be bald, now he's got, quote, a full head of shaggy gray hair. Throughout this chapter and the next couple Arya chapters, George emphasizes that Thoros's robes are tattered, and that his armor is made up of bits and pieces, clearly scavenged from the dead. He doesn't look like a guy who can do what he can do. He doesn't look impressive or otherworldly, like you might expect from an emissary of the divine. Basically, he doesn't look like Melisandre. And Melisandre, as we know, especially from her one POV chapter so far, deliberately cultivates that look as part of her trappings of power. Thoros is all about the substance now, not the surface. As he admits to Sandor, his former appearance was just a role he was playing. He shaved his head to signify a humble heart. I have nothing to hide from God. But that was nothing more than a gesture, like the ribbons tied around the sword Sandor talks about later in the chapter. The reality was that Thoros was arrogant, invested in shiny external signs, rather than being a genuine holy man. That's why he fought with those wildfire swords, a cheap party trick to catch the eye of the audience. War has changed him, converted him into an authentic version of the priest he was only pretending to be. War took Thoros' razor away, so he grows his hair long and messy. War stained and discolored Thoros' nice red robes. Does he care? No, because he no longer believes that matters. You can tell he's outgrown his vanity because when Sandor insults him, saying that only blind maids would want to kiss Thoros now, Thoros agrees and laughs along with everyone else. It's a calm strength I've seen before in true believers, religious and otherwise. The sense that you really can't shake them because they have found something worth believing in, next to which everything else just seems petty and mundane. Yeah, it's such a believable religious awakening, and I think one that fits in well with what we've seen of George's concept of what religion is for in in his books and in general. Uh, Thoros, you know, spent years trying to convert people to this god he didn't really believe in, uh, and now he believes with just an incredible and confident faith. Uh, he's willing to laugh at himself. We'll see in future chapters that... You know, he won't he won't insist on prayers when he's in another god's house because that's not the point. You know, it's not about going through the motions. It's about what you're actually doing. And obviously it helps that he is able to accomplish genuine miracles, which we will see that that would do it. But um, it's also what he's doing with these miracles. You know, these are these are not party tricks to impress the princes of the earth. He's not lighting things on fire to make Robert Baratheon clap like a seal. Uh, he's not even doing what Melisandre does and bargaining his mystical power for temporal power. Uh, his fire is in the hands of the wretched of the earth. It is an equalizing weapon where it can do the most good. And that gives him clarity. And clarity is the path to inner peace. I know that because the Simpsons told me so. Thoros has burned away everything superficial to find a core truth. These are my brothers. I fight with them to defend those who cannot defend themselves. And God cares way more about that than about how nice I look while I do it. It's that great line you brought up, Manu. I am less than I was, but more. It says so much with so few words. Again, Thoros is all about clarity and simplicity. I have shed that which was false, gained that which was true, and as Aemon said on House of the Dragon, it's a fair exchange. Thoros had to give up his old life, his old self, in order to transform into the man he now believes he was always meant to be. It's inspiring stuff, complicated by how Beric feels differently about this process of self-sacrifice, as we will learn later. Only death can pay for life. Speaking of, Beric Dondarrion steps up to the plate. 
Again, like Blood Raven is described in Brand 2 of A Dance with Dragons, Barrack is described first as sitting in a tangle of werewood. Barrack is a scarecrow, Blood Raven a corpse. Two images in the shape of men, but not quote unquote alive like men are. Both have worn black cloaks, are missing an eye, both are even splashed with a little red, Barrack in his hair, and Blood Raven in his eyes and Weinstein birthmark. This chapter really feels like a warm up for that later brand chapter. Barrack and Bloodraven both draw inspiration from Odin, the all-father of Norse mythology. I think the parallels run just a bit deeper with Bloodraven specifically, which I'll save for when we get to his cave in a few years, I guess. But Odin, as a symbol, is often tied to the natural world, his connection to animals such as wolves and ravens, and commonly associated with wisdom, healing, war, and sorcery. Odin, in his search for infinite knowledge and wisdom, went to Mimir, or the Well of Urd, to prove himself worthy of knowledge that would be bestowed by its runes. To accomplish this, Odin hanged himself from the world tree Yggdrasil, cut out one of his eyes, and then pierced himself with his own spear. All three of these sacrifices have an analog in Beric Dondarrion. He lost an eye, was stabbed clear through his body by the mountain's lance, and was hanged as well. He pays the price in order to be an unkillable fire warrior. The Drusil root in Yggdrasil translates to gallows, making it all that more fitting when given the Brotherhood's reputation later on. And it is commonly believed that Yggdrasil was an ash tree. The first death Beric experiences happens in an ash grove. Among the powers and wisdoms granted to Odin following his sacrifice include the ability to heal, to put out fires, to protect comrades in battle, to wake the dead, etc. You can see how all these things, if not directly related to Beric, have worked its way into the telling of the Brotherhood Without Banners. And there's a lot of overlap with the story of Odin hanging from Yggdrasil and Jesus hanging from the cross, which we'll circle back to a bit later on. Uh, Manu, I I did not. Um, that's such a good call on on uh, the Odin wounds uh, parallels with Beric. I I never picked up on that before. Uh, that's a great catch. Uh, yeah, it's it's funny. Like I love the comparison of Beric and Bloodraven. I can see the dress rehearsal, but also it's. It's a funny comparison to me because as political actors, these guys could not be further apart. Um, am I allowed to say bad things about Blood Raven on this podcast? <laughs> you have to clear that with Emmett. I'll sign off on it. I know. I, I'm being watched with a thousand eyes and one. Um, <laughs> always. Always. Because, I mean, Brendan Rivers was the de facto ruler of the Seven Kingdoms uh, for much of his life. He used magical espionage and secret police and good old-fashioned bribery to cull threats to the throne by any means necessary. Uh, and Beric abandoned his lordship and all its trappings to live in a cave with a bunch of peasants and rebel against the Iron Throne on behalf of beekeepers and sex workers. I mean, even now, when Bloodraven, you know, if you take at face value that he is fighting on the side of the living against the great dark, fighting this lonely war. He's doing it by proxy. He's sacrificing the lives of dreamer after dreamer in his pursuit of the perfect student, uh, causing a little bit of crow-eyed collateral damage along the way. Uh, and while he sits in his tree and orchestrates the war, Beric is out on the front lines, literally giving his life for the cause. Now, to be fair to Bloodraven, Beric has some extra lives, but it's still a pretty stark contrast to me uh, in these these two figures who are both um, 
they yeah they have all these parallels and they're both very much this this kind of lonely warrior blood raven just got one long life extended barrack has a bunch of little lives on with you know, like little ad breaks in between that that barrack has going on and yeah i just i love that i love that little bit with the bones that Brancy's in the dream so much because it's like otherwise Blood Raven is just like you see usually saving the world. He's on them aside, then you see those bones, and you're like, oh, Blood Raven, how many kids? How many did you kill or drive mad in order to get Bran? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just, Don't think just about shove it. it under the couch. We'll deal with it later. Exactly. That's where it belongs. And I love that juxtaposition too, the way how you describe Barrack as leading from the front lines, whereas Blood Raven's kind of leading from behind. It's almost taking the way we talk about the kings fighting in the War of the Five Kings as like Stannis or Joffrey leading from behind the walls or from their tent, whereas someone like Rob Stark is out on the front lines actually fighting in the vanguard. Um, it's kind of bringing that military aspect to the mystical realm, which I think is just showing how all these different realms and things are starting to collide together as the story gets deeper and deeper into it. Yeah, I don't think George overvalorizes the idea of the frontline leader. I mean, terrible people can obviously go out into battle and frequently do, but there is a recurring theme, yeah, of, of the people who actually go out and risk their lives with their soldiers versus the ones who sort of hang back and uh, draw up their battle plans. When Arya discovers this is Beric Dondarrion, she's like, no way, man. He was handsome and lovely in King's Landing. The Beric Dondarrion at court was the image of a fantasy hero, handsome and lordly and all that jazz. But it's this shell of a man, broken and beaten, that's the actual hero, the one truly fighting for the people. Just like with her older sister, the difference between songs and reality creates dissonance in Arya that she has to reconcile, something she struggles to do immediately as she calls him the scarecrow that was Beric Dondarrion. Make way for Lord Beric! And close behind came the young lord himself, a dashing figure on a black corsair, with red gold hair and a black satin cloak dusted with stars. Here to fight in the hand's tourney, my lord? A guardsman called out to him. Here to win the hand's tourney, Lord Beric shouted back as the crowd cheered. That's his introduction in Ned 6, A Game of Thrones. Handsomeness aside, I like the detail of the crowd cheering for him, the people's champion, if you can smell what Beric is cooking. And fighting in the hand's tourney for Ned and for Robert kind of describes the Brotherhood Without Banner's cause as is. I am now very disappointed in Game of Thrones that uh, Richard Dormer as Beric never took off his sunglasses and threw them into the crowd. <laughs> I want to hear him just hold up his hand and get it to his ear. I can just picture it all now. It's perfect. It's perfect. So yeah, we finally reached Beric and it's it's basically impossible to overstate what an awesome character Beric Dondarrion is. One of my favorite in A Song of Ice and Fire, despite how little time we actually spend with him. And maybe it's because of how little time we spend with him. It only adds to the aura of mystery that defines him. Beric could easily support a story of his own. The callow tourney knight who undergoes a transformation in the twin crucibles of war and resurrection. Becoming a great leader, sacrificing more and more of himself even as his followers grow. It parallels Thoros, right? Thoros was this hollow priest who found his true faith with the Brotherhood, like we talked about before. And Beric was a knight who was in large part, uh, as far as we can tell, he was all flash and image, the, the picture of chivalry, but not the substance. And now in this mission, he's found the real core of knighthood, as it should be, to defend those who cannot defend themselves. And as we'll see, he is shedding everything else but that, for better and worse. 
He's got that, that superhero arc you could put at the center of a story. He's got a fun supporting cast. He has a potential nemesis in Gregor Clegane. He's got a big fiery hero sword. What more could you ask for in a fantasy protagonist? I can't wait to read Beric Dondarrion, The Dawning of Blood. But that's not how it works out. Instead, Beric will be gone after two more Arya chapters. She gets snatched by Sandor and dragged through the Red Wedding before setting sail for Bravos. By the time we get back to the Brotherhood, Beric has sacrificed himself for good in order to bring back Catelyn, or what's left of her anyway. This brief appearance by a guy we've been building up to for a book and a half doesn't diminish Beric's story. It deepens it into tragedy. He could have been the protagonist, but he's not. He's a passing shadow, and it seems like he knows it. Beric's romantic streak is shot through with self-loathing, a hideous awareness that probably comes with having repeatedly returned from the dead. Even here in his big, powerful opening monologue, he's calling himself a fool in a starry cloak. It's this sense of tattered romanticism that really appeals about Beric, I think, that, that weathered idealism, a good man under siege from within. He lives for the people. He lives for his followers. At some level, he is his followers, and they are him. That's the appeal. That's the core of his legend. And that's the subject of his speech here. We were once tanners, we were once swineherds. We were men from Winterfell, and we were men from Blackhaven. That was before. Before we were us, the Brotherhood. And now that's who we are more than anything else. His speech has a, a rhythm to it. You can hear it echoing off the cave walls in time with his footsteps as he descends. Yeah, music is such a huge theme motif in the Brotherhood chapters. You know, from the jump, the first thing we see or hear of them is Tom singing. Uh, and, you know, obviously a big part of why music matters so much to them is because Tom is constantly there and he will not <laughs> shut up. Uh, but, you know, they're, the you know, his songs are, uh, they're provocative. They get the people going. His companions like them. Um, he pays for prophecy with a song. Uh, and then it kind of repeats, you know, whether it's outlaw songs kind of contrasted against outlaw reality. And then it goes, yeah, as far as here that even Beric is, is kind of sing song in the way he first presents himself. Uh, they, they are the stuff of songs, really, the Brotherhood without banners. Um, kind of makes me think of, of, uh, this podcast's beloved boy, Mance Raider, um, another character who lives through songs. Absolutely. I think that that parallel is deliberate and that that musical quality to Beric's speech, I think, is deliberate. That's who Beric is. Like Mance, he's, he's a warrior poet and he keeps his men together with the power of his words, his ideas and his beliefs. And, you know, when you put it like that, it does make me think that that might be the answer to uh, an old question uh, from all the way back in Game of Thrones of, so why did Ned send this guy to arrest Gregor anyway? Like, just kind of... You know, it was like, no, not Loras Tyrell. I'm sending this other flashy turning knight. Um, maybe Beric already had some of this capacity for leadership before he died. Uh, he might have been a little bit of a showboat with a fancy cape, very cool fancy cape, but maybe he had some of this charisma and he was known for it. Uh, Ned might have known, just based on the fact that Beric was betrothed to a Dane. Um, you know, those old links. Uh, so Ned might have known, no, this is the guy for the job. Uh, I'm not impressed by his, his qualifications on paper, but I know that he's a, a natural leader. Um, so I will pick him to lead this extremely critical military operation that turned out to be the first battle of the War of the Five Kings. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. Maybe it wasn't 
it wasn't battle hardened, but maybe he already had that raw charisma, that that leadership X factor that people like to talk about. I mean, he's just good pick, Ned. Ned, you know, you exactly. weren't around to see the the draft pan out, but uh, it worked. Just, just once, Ned Stark masters personnel. Just once. Yes. Never again. But yeah, it's that Beric is extremely good at making converts. We'll see it happen again with Gendry. And that's because he rules not with blood, nor by the sword, despite the fact that he can use his blood to set his sword on fire. Instead, he says we are bound by our purpose. And that purpose makes us more than we could ever be on our own. It outlasts death. As our original companions have fallen one by one, others have emerged as if summoned to take up their arms, because what lives is the cause. The struggle is all that survives. And Beric bears the truth of that on his body. The missing eye, the smashed-in skull, the ring around his neck, they're the scars of struggle. He's an avatar of Westeros at war, the image of chivalry trampled and distorted beyond recognition. He's the last knight standing. Barely standing, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Beric is up there with Brienne of Tarth as the truest living knights in Westeros, almost. Uh, You know, they're untarnished by even the political calculations of someone like Garland Tyrell or the distasteful duties of Balon Swan gritting his teeth and getting through it. Um, and like Brienne, Beric is totally outside the chivalric system during his finest hour. You know, Brienne isn't even a knight, and not only is Beric in active rebellion against the crown that's supposedly the ultimate authority over knighthood, he's not actually even fucking alive. Uh... That's, but that's this story, right? George's exemplars of chivalry are always going to be people who stand outside the structures it upholds, because those structures are rotten and not worth holding up. Noted philosopher Jamie Lannister did say, no matter what you do, you're breaking one vow or another. But Beric has distilled knighthood down to its most essential vow, to protect the weak and helpless. And so he's divested himself of all the complications and connections that might interfere with that vow being first and only. That makes him a true chivalric hero. No wonder he's such a goddamn bummer. (laughs) Despite being a bummer, he really brings a lot to the table as the head of the Brotherhood Without Banners, uh, a, a shining symbol of hope. And I think that besides some of the craft brilliance we've talked about, all these great parallels and metaphors... The heart of the chapter is the Brotherhood being revealed as a cogent political actor. They're making a real attempt to build this legal and moral foundation for their acts. Uh, Now, I am not a member of the Westerosi Bar Association, uh, but that just means that they can't disbar me no matter what I say. The power is in our hands, boys! So uh, we could talk a little bit here about some of the real-world inspirations that went into the Brotherhood that I think are kind of revealed and explored in this chapter. Um, I think George draws from two major historical sources um, in creating the Brotherhood, uh, those being medieval popular revolts and modern revolutionary movements that employed guerrilla warfare. And there's an obvious religious lens, but luckily both Medieval revolts and modern revolutionaries have a religious aspect that we can touch on, too. Uh, let's start with the guerrilla movements. I think that's a little more surface level, um, and I can promise to not just talk about the Haitian Revolution or the Sandinistas for an hour. That's another podcast. 
Uh, but I will say if you want a deep dive on some of that stuff and how it's reflected in these chapters, I refer you to friend of the show Stephen Adwell, uh, Race for the Iron Throne, his written chapter-by-chapter recaps are just lousy with historical context. Uh, really wonderful stuff, so check him out if you want more of that. Um, but we aren't just paralleling history, we're paralleling other art. Can you tell us about it, Manu? Yeah, sure. Everyone knows the great revolutionary Big Boss, right? Everyone? Everyone listening? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I won't belabor the Metal Gear Solid parallel here, but hey, on 11-11-2022, we're releasing our very last Metal Gear Solid episode at Podcast Sans Frontiers, so let's talk about that a little bit. As a young special agent, Big Boss was sent on a mission by the U.S. government to stop a nuclear war. Instead, Snake would encounter betrayal after betrayal, have, have to kill his own mentor, Mother Figure, and then learn it was all a giant performance orchestrated by the CIA to acquire billions of dollars and military tech. Big Boss would lose an eye during the mission and become disillusioned with the U.S. government. He would start Militar Sans Frontiers, which translates to Army Without Borders or Soldier Without Borders, which is very similar to A Brotherhood Without Banners. They were a unit that fought for peoples and countries who could not stand up for themselves while the U.S. and USSR played their Game of Thrones. Soldiers and civilians flocked from all over the world to swarm the ranks of MSF, both after directly interacting with their charismatic leader and just when word spread of his legend on the battlefield. The more fun parallel is perhaps what comes after. Big Boss was actually injured and went into a coma for nine years, but somehow his myth kept kept growing. He's still fighting all the battles you thought he was, not unlike Renly's ghost. And when they have to hand off leadership of their military organizations, those units become vessels for violent retribution, lust for revenge, not the same justice the Knights of the Hollow Hill are clamoring for here. It speaks to how these once-in-a-lifetime aspirational leaders are able to hold these units and their morale together and the deleterious effect replacing them may have. And Big Boss himself was designed by creator Hideo Kojima as a version of Che Guevara, another charismatic revolutionary who would be part of the zeitgeist during Georgia's youth. Che, too, believed in liberation beyond the banners of any one country, taking his fight to Cuba, the Congo, and his voice to the UN and Japan. Yeah, Che is probably the most recognizable revolutionary in the Western world, on account of all those posters. Um... Again, a full examination of Che Guevara as a political actor and possible character model is outside the scope of this podcast. Uh, Check out Blowback Season 2 for more about Che and the Cuban Revolution and what came next. Uh, But I do think it's worth talking a little bit about one parallel. Che Guevara, Ernesto Guevara, was born to an upper-class Argentinian family, uh, like a lot of other famous revolutionaries. You know, Duchess Constance Markowicz in Ireland, Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso, Alexander Petion in Haiti, uh, they were all class traitors. They grew up benefiting from the system they were fighting against. Uh, and Barrick, like them, uses his aristocratic status in his war. Uh, it's a symbol of legal legitimacy, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but it's also a recruitment tool, like uh, with Lady Smallwood being a uh, Brotherhood sympathizer. And of course, he used it by making knights. Any knight can make a knight, but he was the one who started making knights, and that's really, I think, a, a, a powerful part of um, the Brotherhood's effectiveness as a, a propaganda and morale tool. Um, you covered 
did a bonus episode about Kingdom of Heaven on this show a while back, right? I love that movie. Um, and yeah, there's a somewhat corny, but like ultimately very effective scene, you know, where, where Orlando Bloom or Bailey and knights everyone in Jerusalem, which did not happen exactly that way in history, but the real Bailey and Evelyn did knight a whole bunch of people right before the battle. Uh, we don't know if it actually gave them like a, a big, you know, stat boost, but it probably didn't hurt. You know, one last thing about guerrilla movements um, that relates to the Brotherhood is that, you know, you look at them historically, a ton of their effectiveness um, on the battlefield and beyond comes from winning hearts and minds. Uh, they're historically more successful when they're supported and concealed, and ultimately, they're composed of the people they intend to fight for. That's what makes a guerrilla movement. Uh, when the superior force can actually make some inroads in the propaganda war, that's how you lose, as much as by, you know, just being outgunned and outnumbered. Uh, I think it's instructive in the way George wrote this to note that Nobody is even trying to beat the Brotherhood in the propaganda war. Nobody is doing what Arthur Dane did in the Kingswood or what Jamie Lannister later does, uh, you know, modeled after him um, in the Riverlands, trebuchets aside. Now, it's not really surprising that Tywin doesn't bother with the propaganda war. He doesn't even care about peasants' backs and limbs, let alone their hearts and minds. Uh, but, you know, the ostensible king of the Riverlands, Rob Stark, is not doing anything to try to win his people back from the outlaws. Uh, the local riverlords aren't doing it either. And here in this chapter, we meet Beric and we meet Thoros, and we understand why. No offense to, like, Carl Vance and Jason Malister, but what are they going to do to out-propagandize these guys? Uh, Beric weaponizes his reputation and the genuinely supernatural power behind it to inspire the people of the Riverlands and to win them to his cause. Uh, the Riverlords are absent, and the Lannister regime, as usual, has one answer, which is Tywin just mashing the big old war crimes button like he does whenever he's backed into a corner. Um, I mean, you can even kind of see that Barrett's willingness to get himself killed over and over and keep coming back is maybe just one last shadow of his old panache and dash, you know, the, the guy who was there to win the hand's tourney. Um, he hands himself over to Amory Lorch to be hanged to spare a beekeeper. Uh, maybe part of him knowing, yeah, this isn't going to work, but hey, go ahead and kill me. I'll be back and you're going to be so fucking scared of me. Oh, man. Barrack rules. <laughs> um, okay, so let's move to talking about medieval popular revolts, uh, and then the, the homework section will be over. Um, I think specifically we should talk about peasant rebellions in Europe. Uh, that's the kind of cultural framework George is drawing from in Song of Ice and Fire. Um, and I'm not talking about things like the, uh, the Barons Wars in England. You can throw out anything that was just the aristocracy fighting among itself for who got to be on top. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, the, the Jacquerie of 1358, the English Peasants' Revolt of 1381, um, commoners' revolts, I guess. Um, they're all different. There's, there's again, you know, I highly recommend whether it's uh, Stephen Adewell's uh, Race for the Iron Throne or, um, you know, We're Not So Different, a podcast co-hosted by a friend of the show, Luke. Um, but... I think there's two major through lines that are relevant to the Brotherhood Without Banners. So one is that, looking at these movements, the causes were almost always chiefly some combination of economic disparity and breakdown in social order. You know, the Jacquerie was 
when France was completely destroyed by the Hundred Years' War, uh, the English Peasants' Revolt, um, less visibly militarily destroyed, but more economically um, just crushed uh, by the expense of the war and the inequality since uh, the Black Death. Uh, In short, being a peasant in this time was visibly worse, and there was no enforcement mechanism to remind peasants, you know, hey, you're peasants, shut up, which is exactly what's going on in the Riverlands. You know, everything is miserable, and nobody is telling them, you know, it's shit, it's supposed to be shit, and if you don't like it, too bad. Uh, so that sets us up for what's happening, um, and what results with the Brotherhood parallels the other through line of peasant rebellions, which is that they weren't, they weren't revolutions, uh, in the way we talked about with, you know, some of the guerrilla movements. Um, they were not rearranging the social order. You know, some of them have more coherent demands than others. The Jacquerie in France was infamously just kind of random terror, uh, just being exercised by a different class than usual. Uh, but when they did have demands, they were demands made of the aristocracy and especially of the throne, not we're going to do this, but we need you to do this. I want to overgeneralize about like the medieval mindset or whatever, but all of these revolts largely happened in polities where, from a legal standpoint, the body politic required a king to operate. You know, all authority derived from the crown and the throne. Uh, and if there was a philo- philosophical framework advanced enough to present an alternative in the 14th century, these movements did not have that framework. And George draws on that uh, a lot, and you can see it in... The Brotherhood, uh, they don't have the capacity to envision justice without a king ultimately uh, being the source of it, uh, or to execute that justice without a lord. So they nominate their own lord, Beric, who claims the right of pit and gallows because no one else is using them. And they claim the authority of an absent king, that font of law and justice, Robert Baratheon, first of his name. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, The important thing is that it provides a foundation that the people around them recognize as valid, right? The Brotherhood is not just holding show trials, or at least they're not only show trials. Uh, These are taking the place of absent institutions. They are doing the things that the people in these communities recognize as what justice looks like, and they're recontextualizing it to actually serve the people who depend on it. You know, as opposed to the lords who usually administer it and are not capable of sustaining these legal institutions. But there's a big downside, which we already touched on, which is that, like so much else about the Brotherhood, it all stems from Beric. Not Robert Baratheon, as a matter of fact. Beric is the one overseeing these trials, and his presence and his um, faculties for justice ensure that they don't disintegrate into farces. Uh, you know, the Mad Huntsman Crow's cage, the Mad Huntsman's Crow cages were not justice, and we see that the Core Brotherhood recognizes that and deals with it once they find out. But that comes from Beric. What happens when Beric's not around anymore? Oh, that's such great stuff, man. And I was I was really interested in how you were framing it really as a question of, of legitimacy, of where where does the Brotherhood's power come from? Or more to the point, where do the Brotherhood where does the Brotherhood think their power comes from? 
Like, they have this bedrock authenticity of being all volunteers dedicated to protecting the small folk, pr- protecting the small folk from any and all sides of the war. But they really, they really have nothing resembling an endgame. Like, what does victory look like for the Brotherhood? What can you sell to your men as a win condition? Without one, you're broken men on borrowed time. Is the war ever going to be over for you? The irony is there is one king who follows the Red God, and he's also Robert's legal heir, but unlike the show, the Stannis plot never comes close to crossing paths with the Brotherhood in the books, and honestly, I doubt they would get along anyway. Thoros and Melisandre take very different views of their god, and Beric would probably have more to talk about with Davos than with Stannis. So instead, the Brotherhood serve a dead king, Robert. That's how Beric concludes his big intro speech, and it really sums up his whole enterprise. Robert was the last peacetime king, the last king to preside over a Westeros United. Obviously, he didn't do all that good a job, what with the Civil War immediately breaking out after he dies, but he's still a potent symbol of better times. That's why Renly plays on nostalgia for young Robert. You liked this guy, you were young and had it together when he was in charge. If none of the options in the present day appeal, why not rally around the banner of the good old days, the last time our lives made sense to us? It's both canny and silly equal parts poetic inspiration, and total bullshit. On one hand, the great thing about fighting for a dead guy is he can't disappoint you. He can't betray you. He can't turn out to be just as bad as the guys you're fighting. Robert's a symbol now, a shadow on a wall. He can mean whatever you need him to mean. It doesn't even matter that Robert isn't actually the one who sent them out. Ah, because Ned did it in Robert's name, you see, and that's all they need. It's part of the legend, the song Beric is singing to Sandor. We held the royal banner before your brother's butchers fell upon us. We were marked that day as king's men, a holy order like the Kingsguard. We were chosen. That's incredibly powerful stuff. And it has clearly inspired the Brotherhood's sense of unity. We were one nation as Westeros under Robert, and we have been unjustly turned against one another. We come together as brothers to remind ourselves that, well, we're brothers. We shouldn't be fighting each other. On the other hand, Sandor is 100% correct that if Robert were still alive, he would not give a shit about the Brotherhood or any of their beliefs. If he couldn't fuck it, fight it, or drink it, it bored him. Yep, no notes, that's the Robert we saw all through book one. He talked a good game about riding off to be an outlaw knight, but the truth was that Robert liked to be comfortable. If he had lived to fight Tywin on his own terms, it would have been as a war machine like those the Brotherhood is fighting. Robert wouldn't deliberately spread terror, like the Lannisters or the Boltons, but nor would he pause to shelter anyone in his path. So who were you kidding, calling yourselves Robert's men? Well, it wasn't Renly who won the Battle of Blackwater. It was Renly's ghost. Why shouldn't Robert's ghost be just as powerful? Yeah, Robert's ghost is the perfect king for the Brotherhood's purposes. He's an entirely theoretical monarch. The only purpose he has, or the only use he has, is to be a philosophical battery to which they hook up the Brotherhood mobile and make it go. His ghost grants them the power to dispense justice according to their own conventions, and based on their direct involvement in the matters under scrutiny, they're there, they know, you know, the people who are calling to them for justice. Uh, and they don't have to risk the king actually coming down from his throne and sticking his nose in their business and saying, actually, I'm in charge here. As a model, it has some fairly obvious holes. Again, uh, this is not the Learned Hands pod, um, so we're just going to skate right over them, because uh, it's a neat little end run around the ethical problem presented by Barrett's outlawry, and thus all of his followers also being outlaws. If the king you've got has declared you an outlaw... 
Make your own king who says you're cool. Don't worry about it. Reminds me of that great, great line in Veep where uh, Ben, the chief of staff character, is talking to some of his, his co-workers. And he says, look, we all know the White House would function better if there weren't a president. But there just is, so we have to work around him. And that's basically what the Brotherhood are dealing with. It's just very convenient. We have this absent center. We can just conceptually work around. And that, yeah, that's the big... Yeah, I was ahead. just saying, I, I do think that Robert would probably get on very well with Tom Seven Strings. Absolutely. No, he would love the legend of the Brotherhood. But the part about sleeping in caves like and like not getting enough to eat most of the time, nah, Robert is Robert is not about that at all. So yeah, he would love he again, he would love the surface, he would not love the substance. Just as the Thoros he was into was the guy with the wildfire swords. And this Thoros, Robert, probably wouldn't like him as much. And that's the big philosophical debate at the heart of this chapter. Romanticism versus realism. What is the realm? For the Brotherhood, it's an idea. It's their animating principle. For Sandor, it's nothing but rocks and rivers and trees. Only the material reality, and anything beyond that, is make-believe. I think it's crucial that George doesn't actually resolve that debate in this chapter. He doesn't really come down on one side or the other. Instead, he uses each side to expose the vulnerabilities in the other, exploring why people believe what they believe, escalating the debate as the stakes keep shifting. Thomas Evans expresses both sides of the coin, which is appropriate. He's the singer. He's the storyteller. He's standing in for the author himself. It's Tom who gives his found family their name, the Brotherhood Without Banners, an idea of the realm beyond any one faction, defined by common humanity. As he says it, Tom plucks a single string, which I love. It comes off as both genuine and sarcastic, like he's invested in the story they're telling while making fun of it at the same time. Mythology works on us, even when we know better. We can see the puppet strings and yet still believe. It's part of the complicated process by which human beings make sense of the world around us. One of the fun structural bits for me is that Aria 5 ends with this cliffhanger. Which of the Lannister men did the Mad Huntsman capture? But when we get to Aria 6, that reveal takes a backseat to Thoros and Beric, even if the Hound is there the whole time. He's the perfect sounding board for the high ideals of the Brotherhood Without Banners. Both have common descent in their beliefs. The idea of knighthood in Westeros is bastardized. Thus, the Hound rejects knighthood, while the Brotherhood Without Banners tries to reclaim it. Any knight can make a knight, Beric says, and all these men have, tapped, have been tapped with steel on their shoulders. But to Sandor, a knight's just a sword with a horse, a pretty ribbon to tie around a blade. They lie, they steal, they kill, but because of the Sir in front of their name, that's mostly overlooked. Sir Gregor, Sir Jamie, hell, even Sir Barristan could and maybe should have been punished for their crimes and treasons. But that Sir creates another narrative, a get-out-of-jail-free card, as it were. I remember the gut punch of reading this chapter for the first time when it's revealed that Sandor is the prisoner. Honestly, I had forgotten all about him. We haven't seen him since the Blackwater, and he's only been mentioned in passing a couple of times since then. Yeah, I remember being pretty sure, like, okay, this isn't Jamie, like, that's too obvious, but I had no idea who it was going to be until this reveal. I'm like, oh, it's Dogface Guy! <laughs> I remember him. He was it's, in the other books. It's Poochie! <laughs> it's Poochie's back, everyone. And and George writes the Hound so well, it's like he never left. You get, a, you get such a strong sense of his personality, even though he's not a POV character. For me, the only other non-POV character whose mindset comes through that clearly is Stannis, where every scene that Stannis exists in, you're like, ah, I know exactly what decision this dude is going to make, just because it, it all comes out through, clearly through his dialogue. And same thing with Sandor. Even before a word leaves Sandor's mouth, he's framed perfectly by the imagery. 
The shifting flames painted Sandor Clegane's burned face with orange shadows, so he looked even more terrible than he did in daylight. Sandor's life has been defined by the horrendous suffering he endured at the hands of his brother Gregor, who shoved his face into the flames. He created the persona of the Hound as a way of dealing with all the anger and pain, reflecting the monstrosity of the world back at it. Again, wearing it like armor so it couldn't be used against him. Yeah, you want to talk about the power of crafting your own name. I mean, you've got the Mad Huntsman, uh, the Red Priest and the Lightning, Lightning Lord facing off against the Hound. He's the perfect villain for this song. Tom hardly has to do any work at all. And he was re-traumatized at the Battle of Blackwater, the horror of the wildfire breaking down his defense mechanisms, resulting in that unexpected moment of intimacy with Sansa. And now he's reintroduced, staring down the fire once again. The flames paint shadows on his face, George writes, emphasizing how he's never been able to escape what happened to him. The physical and emotional pain has lingered like a shadow. Just like how Jamie's hand burns long after he loses it, Sandor is always burning, on the inside. And the brilliance of this chapter is in the back and forth. It's not just a showcase for Beric and the Brotherhood, it's also a crucible for Sandor. And while he emerges the winner of the duel at the end, his life spared by divine intervention, or just plain luck, he doesn't come through unscathed, philosophically as well as literally. You get this great contrast between the lofty romantic dialogue of the Brotherhood and the coarse, cynical dialogue of the Hound. It's an argument over Arya's soul, right? And they're vocally doing it right here. Exactly. It's Again, like I said earlier, it's like Arya's dreaming, and these characters are all kind of aspects of her, and they're, they're fighting it out. And Thoros says he is less than he was, but more. Sandor says only blind girls would want to kiss him now. Thoros says he has seen great powers at work in the flames. Yeah, fuck your flames, says Sandor, and fuck you while you're at it. Lem says Sandor should talk nicer to them. After all, they've got his life in their hands. And what he says to that is really revealing. Best wipe the shit off your fingers, then. It's not just that Sandor thinks Westeros is worthless. He also thinks that he is worthless. He's not arrogant, exactly. He thinks of himself as a shitty person, representative of a shitty world. And what makes him special is that he's willing to admit it. He can't be made to knuckle under out of self-preservation because he doesn't care about himself. It's why he doesn't take care of himself, seemingly happy to slowly drink himself to death. And there is a strength to that, but it's a brittle strength, again like Stannis. It falls apart when you start to poke at it, as the Brotherhood are doing. What really sets Sandor off is when Tom refers to the Brotherhood as the Knights of the Hollow Hill. Sandor has a, let's say, complicated relationship with knighthood. On one hand, he doesn't believe in the institution at all, because Gregor was knighted despite his horrible crimes. Everything he's seen since then as one of the Lannister's pet monsters has only cemented that worldview. He laid it out at length to Sansa in A Clash of Kings. The world is made by killers, who lie to you via the stories and the songs. Here he makes the same case. Knighthood is a shiny silk ribbon we tie around a sword to make it seem less like a blunt instrument of death. All the vows, the anointing oils, the title of sir, none of that is the essence of knighthood. The essence of knighthood is what Gregor did to him. There are no true knights. In reality, Sansa thought, the monsters win. It's a powerful statement of disillusionment with the system, one we have seen plenty of evidence for already in A Song of Ice and Fire. Just look at Sir Amory Lorch slaughtering civilians in the Riverlands, declaring that young men and young boys and old men die the same. Or look at Sir Marin Trant beating Sansa. You can tell that George is channeling his own horror and anger at crimes committed in the modern day, a subtext which 
pretty much becomes text when we get to the Vietnam and Iraq parallels in A Dance with Dragons. There's something cathartic about a great storyteller like George reckoning with how stories can be used for evil, as propaganda. Sandor is arguing that the Brotherhood are basically delusional, lying to themselves about who they are and what they're for. But he's also lying to himself. When he says that he's the same as the Brotherhood and says he'd rather they kill him than judge him, he's protesting too much. He's overcompensating. And this is why we were always bound for a trial for combat here, no matter what the accusations were, no matter how many witnesses could be produced. There's no point in getting Sandra Clegane to admit to guilt. He screams it every day. He knows he's guilty. He has been begging for years for someone to find him guilty. But in order to do that, he has to find someone who he acknowledges has the power to judge him. And... The problem with that is that he is still enough of an idealist to demand judgment by someone who doesn't have shit on their fingers. You know, he he might not be a true knight, but neither are you. So who are you to judge him? You're just as guilty as he is. Or guilty enough. Guilty enough, exactly. And he's, he's so offended by that because the truth is that part of Sandor still believes. After all, what was it that set Gregor off all those years ago? It was that Sandor had taken one of Gregor's toys, specifically a toy figure of a knight. Those were the stories Sandor loved. And uh, because his injuries have, I think, in some ways just frozen his development in childhood, he can't abandon that dream. Sansa brought that out of him, the desire to be a true knight, protect the innocent, make the songs real. It was her song that spoke to him during the battle. As long as the world is shit, Sandor doesn't have to take any responsibility for it, or for himself. But like you say, his guilt keeps bubbling up to the surface. We're going to see that over and over again in these Arya chapters. The Brotherhood provoke that guilt because they have made different choices from him. I think what Sandor is really afraid of is that true knights turned out to be real after all. Here they are, a cave full of them. They don't bear the title of Sir, they don't have the anointing oils, and they don't work for the state. Beric made them all knights, redistributing the title downward to those who are more often victims of the knightly caste. They're outlaws devoting their lives to resisting men like his brother. And I think part of Sandor wishes he could be one of them, a knight who remembered his vows. But that would mean reckoning with everything he's been doing instead. So he has to take them down a peg. He has to deconstruct their worldview because it's such a challenge to his. It's a question of faith, really, whether faith is the solution or the problem. Faith is on trial here as much as Sandor. The accusations thrown at Sandor get at questions of sins of the father, or perhaps more accurately, sins of the liege lord and sins of the brother. What level of complicity is there if you fight for one side or another? Lannister is raped at the Mummer's Ford. His own brother is guilty of regicide and infanticide in one stroke. Is being born Clegane, a sworn sword to House Lannister, a crime? Sanders served his lords like thousands of others before him and after him. If he broke his oath to his liege, what would these men say about him? Would Ned, what would Ned think? One of the ghosts the Brotherhood without banners fight in the name of? Would the wolf judge the hound like he did the lion? And I want to be clear here, I think Ned would be anti-child murder. But if you see someone with a lesser, like someone like Sir Barristan, I mean, these are those contracting vows. Like, what would Barristan say? I should have served the king no matter how shitty he was? Because um, that's basically what he did. The question about duty versus morality is one we can turn on ourselves in the real world, a question of ideology in a late capitalist world. 
As a brown person, I think a lot about this. Most of the victims of the U.S. empire are people who look like me, global south countries with predominantly black and brown populations. What complicity do I have in the violence inflicted in them as an American? What complicity do I have if I vote for a candidate that votes to attack Yemen or Libya or Afghanistan? Hell, what complicity do I have when I buy stuff from Amazon or go to a Cubs game owned by one of the most right-wing power brokers around, the Ricketts family, and working a corporate job that upholds capitalism and empire? One of the ways institutions become oppressive is in part how integrated they become into day-to-day life, our routines, our mores, our common practices, our laws, etc. You become fundamentally inextricable to the systems around you, because they all overlap, often in opaque, confusing ways, so us small folk can't make heads or tails of it. It seems inescapable that nothing can change the way things are, and that's how we should live and judge others by. Happy election day, everyone. <laughs> uh, beautifully said, Manu. Um, I think when you're living in the heart of a machine that's made for killing people uh, and you are able to recognize it as such, as Sandor does being an operator of that machine, uh, you get this overwhelming urge to do something. Maybe it's not enough. It's not going to stop the gears. It's not going to turn it off. But it's at least going to leave a visible mark. Uh, we know that George lived that uh, as a conscientious objector. He was not himself going to stop the invasion of Vietnam. You know, I think about that Vonnegut quote about the uh, the power of every artist in uh, in America. I can't remember exactly what it right, is. It turned out to be uh, like a but... cake being dropped off a stepladder or whatever his little metaphor yeah, was there. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, George was doing what he could, even if all he could do was be loudly on record as saying, no, fuck this. It's an existential victory, which we know these books are, are very concerned with. And I think the Brotherhood is really a reflection of that frustration that he knows so well, that need to do something when you're faced with, uh, with visible injustice and, t- you know, horror in front of you. Sandra Clegane is not Tywin. He's not his brother. He isn't even Kevin Lannister. <laughs> But he's culpable enough for doing something about him to leave a mark on the machine, even if the Brotherhood are the only ones that see it. And this is where we get to the heart of the chapter, what really brands it into memory, at least for me. Sandor tells the Brotherhood to kill him and get it over with. But enough with the pretense that you're the good guys. So they have to make the case for themselves. And they do so in the simplest and most powerful way possible. A list of the dead. It has a very ceremonial feel to it. You can imagine the Brotherhood carrying these names with them, praying to them at every meal, whispering them every morning, every night, every time it seems like it's too hard to carry on. If that sounds familiar, it should. That's what Arya does with her kill list. It's an inversion. Arya has a list of live people she wants dead. The Brotherhood has a list of dead people they wish were still alive. This is how they keep them alive, if only in memory. This is how they insist that their lives had meaning, in spite of a world at war that seems determined to rob them of all dignity, as well as their lives. As with Beric's speech, there's a deliberate sense of rhythm to this. It's almost a song in itself, a musical tribute to the dead. Sandor is right that songs and stories distort everything, often deliberately. But the songs and stories are also how we preserve things. Time takes everything away from us. Every grave is unmarked eventually 
as Rob learns when he visits Old Stones, and he sees that tomb of the king. The king had worn a beard they could see, but otherwise his face was smooth and featureless, with only vague suggestions of a mouth, a nose, eyes, and the crown about the temples. His hands folded over the shaft of a stone warhammer that lay upon his chest. Once the warhammer would have been carved with runes that told its name and history, but all that the centuries had worn away. Rob only knows Old Stones at all because of the song. You know the one. The one we all remember from season 8. High in the halls of the kings who are gone, Jenny danced with her ghosts. Catelyn remembers playing at being Jenny and her Prince of Dragonflies, and tells her son that we're all just songs in the end, if we're lucky. Behind every name is a life, and every life is a story. Jack B. Lucky says both of his brothers were killed. And for a moment, you can see them, the three of them, all laughing together. Greenbeard mourns for Merriman's widow who loved so sweet. There's an entire story there, clearly. There was this guy, Merriman, he died, and his wife moved on, with Greenbeard at least. And now she's gone too, and he remembers her. Tom mentions Alan of Winterfell. We know that guy. He came south with Ned. He dreamed of being a knight. And this is how we learn that he's dead. He died so far from home. So far from everyone who knew and loved him. Except his brothers, raging against the dying of the light. And while the Brotherhood are mostly in this for the small folk, the victims they name come from every background, including the nobility. It's a real cross-section of Westerosi society. I just wanted to gush about this paragraph for a second. I mean, it's it's really good. It's everything you said. It, it hits readers like a, a brick through your window. Um... And the most effective thing, I mean, for, like you said, Alan of Winterfell, we know that guy. Uh, and if we know him, then everyone else in this list is known. There's so many great pieces of phrasing that tell you a whole little story about who these people were and why they mattered. Um, and that strips away all the, the high-minded legal niceties and frameworks and everything we're discussing about who has the right to pit and gallows uh this is what the brotherhood is about what gives them the right is that they knew merriman's widow they knew jack's brothers they knew alan and someone killed them and something has to be done to make it right and to stop the killing that's what they're here trying to do uh it is just resounding uh, in its effectiveness, even as it gets complicated later on. It's exactly right. It makes it not abstract. It's, it's, it's just the yes. reality. It's just these people. And what's so overwhelming about it is knowing this is a drop in the bucket. Like, this is a tiny fraction of the people killed by the Lannisters. And this isn't even taking into account those killed by the Stark and Tully men. The realist will never be complete. Because there were so many who died with no witnesses, left to rot, no one watching but the trees. And yet this bare handful of names is enough to make the reader feel like we're drowning in death. That's how awful the war is. That's how valuable our lives are, that each one seems to contain the world entire. And I love that the Brotherhood aren't trying to frame these people as having all been saints, because that's not the point. They were people, Beric says. They were good people, they were bad people. The only thing they all had in common was how it ended, too soon, murdered by Lannister men. It's a devastating indictment of the people who run Westeros, and then you remember that the people who run Westeros aren't in this room. The actual person on trial here isn't Tywin, 
or Roos, or even Gregor, who might not be among the movers and shakers, but has caused enough damage on his own to earn whatever comeuppance he gets. No, the defendant is Sandor, who we've been made to have very complicated feelings about, and who is not even indirectly responsible for all these deaths. And yet it gets to him. You can tell from how angry he gets in response. He claims that these names are just noise, but then he asks, who were they? Well, many of them were victims of his brother, just like him. When Thoros talks about watching Tywin lay the corpses of Rhaegar's children before the Iron Throne, as if Sandor is responsible, I think we're supposed to remember that Sandor himself was once one of the children unfortunate enough to get in Gregor's way. And if the Brotherhood can mourn even for bad people, well, what about Sandor? Would he be worth mourning if they killed him? Add him to the list with all the rest. It's so smart how George sets this up. He goes for the gut with that list, makes us sad and angry, ready to see justice done, and then reminds us that the system itself is not on trial here, only Sandor the individual. Is it really appropriate to use him as a scapegoat? And it reminds me of the, the big famous lawyer speech uh, from, from Battlestar Galactica, when one character defending a guy that everyone hates and collaborated with the, the evil robots that are the enemy of that show. And he gives this speech that concludes with, we make our own laws now, our own justice, and we've been pretty creative with ways of letting people off the hook for everything from theft to murder. And we've had to be, because we're not a civilization anymore. We are a gang, and we're on the run, and we have to fight to survive. We have to break rules, we have to bend laws, we have to improvise. But not this time. Not for Gaius Baltar, the character on trial. No, you have to die. You have to die because, well, because we don't like you very much. We're trying to dump all that guilt and all that shame onto one man, and then flush him out the airlock and just hope that gets rid of it all. And it's the same thing happening here. And that's such great writing because it forces the reader to, to step back a little bit and consider, okay, well, what can we actually hang on Sandor? What is he personally responsible for? That's what makes the Hound's actual crime here so compelling. It's not really clear-cut legally. I mean, yes, in no way is riding down the butcher's boy morally defensible, but the Hound was ordered to do so by the prince, who, bastardy aside, has power flowing from the same source as what Beric and his knights claim, the crown. It's not clear-cut murder in the way Arya wants it to be, even though we, the reader, have infinite sympathy for her claim. It's here where Arya really emerges in this chapter. Remember Arya? Yeah, she's here, despite the last hour and a half of discussion. She was an observer for the first half of the chapter, soaking in the cave and the brotherhood and the hound, but her interiority busts forth as Micah comes up. That's her original sin, when winter came, when she lost a wolf and maybe a sister and it was all made spectacle to appease Prince Shit and his mother. And Arya, affectionately, is very childish in this moment. When the hound tells her she's supposed to be dead, all she can say is, no, you are. Then she thinks about how often she prayed for the hound to die. He has to. I prayed ever so hard. Even after Beric is defeated, her thoughts immediately go to, if there were gods, why didn't Lord Beric win? It reminds us that Arya is just a kid, that justice and restitution and punishment aren't things she has a full mental model of, which we discussed back during Arya 5. Yeah, you described that really well, how Arya just like suddenly bursts back into the chapter after this long while focused on Sandor versus the Brotherhood. It's a really neat device that George uses in Arya's chapters. Uh, in Clash and Storm, she spends so long as basically a camera on the Riverlands, uh, which is extremely important, but... 
her own agenda is mostly just survival and then eventually this sort of ill-defined journey towards River Run. Uh, and she's just kind of going along. So whenever she does actually assert her own opinions and her own desires, it comes out of nowhere like this. Uh, but this is probably one of the most impactful moments up there with revealing herself to Harwin, which still makes me choke up. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's similar in how it, it, it ties the unfolding, the big picture, the moral dilemma into Arya's own character arc. Because unlike everyone else here, she knows about a specific crime committed by Sandor. And that reminds us of how we first met him, as a monstrous child killer, before he started getting more depthful in Sansa chapters. Well, Arya didn't read those chapters. She only knows Sandor as the man who murdered her friend, poor Micah, who didn't do anything wrong. And while Sandor does have the excuse that he was ordered to do it, that totally contradicts his persona as the rogue truth-teller. You can't say that knights are just swords with horses and none of the trappings of power matter, and then turn around to declare that royal lips tell no lies. He said there were no differences between him and the Brotherhood, but now he's admitting to one. This is something they can get him on. And as a side note, I love how Sandor reacts when he realizes who Arya is. He calls her the Little Sister, which I think that really reveals how much Sansa got under his skin, because why else call Arya the Little Sister except relative to Sansa? And I think also because he is a little brother, you know, he knows that it's, uh, no one likes being the younger sibling. Although, to be fair to him, he had it a lot worse than yeah, he got. He got more than teased and bullied. Yeah, he, he had it pretty bad. But no, I think you hit on something here, where Sandor sees Sansa as like this kind of impossible ideal of something totally different from him. And then when he looks at Arya, he goes, oh, that's me. That's that's the person I would be in that family. And he remembers her throwing Joffrey's sword into the river, which which must have been hilarious for Sandor to hear about as it was for Renly. And yeah, Sandor and Arya's relationship, it is it's very different from his relationship with Sansa, but I think it's it's equally well written. I think George is clearly going for like a, a mirror image thing there, and I'm looking forward to talking about that more in later episodes. Another real moment of humanity for Arya is when Beric calls to his squire, Ned, aka Adric Dane. She jumps just at hearing the name Ned, which, like I jumped during House of the Dragon when one of Viserys' Valyrian model upkeepers was named Ned. To the A Song of Ice and Fire versed, Ned is a name that immediately invokes a deluge of emotion. He'll feature more prominently in upcoming Arya chapters, but his name here is yet another ghost. Ned Stark sent Beric out to bring one Clegane to justice. Now Ned Dane serves Beric in attempt to bring another Clegane to justice. Just as the Hound was incredulous at the Brotherhood without banner chivalry, he's shocked at the trial by combat sentencing. Against me? Possibly the fiercest warrior in all the kingdoms? You're going to have someone fight me? It wouldn't matter if it's Thoros or Arya. He'd murderize his foe all the same. And it's not like this is unknown to the Brotherhood either. Three men have to knock and draw arrows on the Hound before they even consider removing his bonds. They know he's dangerous. And this is where all of George's work with Beric really pays off for the reader. You know, a, a book and a half of building him up. So when he's the one, you know, he steps up and says, it'll be me you face. I mean, you feel that. You go, oh, oh no, this is different. Because we as readers know perfectly well how dangerous the Hound is. But we don't know how dangerous Beric is. And that is much scarier. 
Yeah, I think uh, something they kind of pulled off uh, very subtly in the show because when uh, the Hound is said, oh, you're going to face Beric Dondarrion, they actually have Rory McCann have a look of fear flash across his face. And the only time we had seen that previously in his performance was at the Blackwater. So um, they weren't able to build up the myth of Beric Dondarrion as well as they do in the books. But at least in the performance in the moment, they were able to say, oh, even the Hound is kind of like freaked out by this guy. The Lord of Light emerges as a main player here. He'd mostly been sequestered to Davos chapters and Team Dragonstone, but now that fire has spread to other parts of the story. The first time through, it's a jolt. We're still likely a bit iffy about Melisandre and even Stannis, not speaking for poor Quentin there, and we've seen and heard some of the horrors Roller has sanctioned, from shadow babies to burned men. Religion, not unlike sorcery, is a blade without a hilt. We see how it can be wielded by the powerful, both in Westeros and our real world, from English monarchs ruining the papacy to American evangelicals seizing the levers of power. It is used to further their own ends, material or otherwise, and namely to maintain existing power structures and create an actionable model of subservience. But at the same time, religion and spirituality can be liberating, a source of healing and part of a model of transformative justice. One has to look no further than the black civil rights movement here in the South. The, the church was an important pillar of community organizing and solidarity, and faith was a key component to both Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X in their revolutionary movements. I'm not putting the Brotherhood Without Banners on par with that, but I think these are questions the text poses here about who and why and how faith is implemented in the context of power and powerlessness I think you can find another parallel, too, um, in liberation theology. I alluded earlier to the religious components to um, you know, guerrilla movements that might have inspired George. Uh, liberation theology developed in Latin America um, during the 20th century, you know, the spread of different uh, revolutionary movements um, across the continent and the subcontinent in Central America uh, was accompanied by this radical reinterpretation uh, of Catholic doctrine uh, in line with an often, you know, Marxist economic analysis that basically took the idea that, you know, the, the Catholic teachings that religion, that religion was meant to serve the poor, that, you know, there was this struggle for justice for the very least among people, um, and put that into play in a real way. Um, I am not myself, uh, Catholic, but, um, so I, I cannot speak too much to the doctrine of it, but we don't need that whole uh, another homework section. What I will say is the faith of the seven, I guess, is our closest analog to Catholicism and Christianity. Uh, but here, I think, you know, better than the Sparrow movement of later books, I think what the Brotherhood is doing and how they reflect what we'll find out about Rolorism later does parallel a little liberation theology and specifically the way that it was this it was born out of struggle and beside struggle right it did not lead to it it was not a sort of ad hoc or after the fact justification it was people of faith and people of fervor uh both religiously and in a material cause finding a way to let one inspire the other 
And we've seen that with uh, with Beric and with Thoros more than anyone, and with how so many of their followers who, you know, before had never been exposed to this faith are now embracing it, not because they got to see Thoros's cool party tricks or any of the other ways that, you know, the Red God's followers normally recruit, but because this is the faith that is doing something. This is, you know, the fire that burns among them. That's, yeah, that's that's really interesting to think about kind of different facets of the religion, of the real world religion being explored by different factions in universe, like the Sparrow Movement, or, or yeah, that's, I mean, as a first time reader, as soon as they start talking about the Lord of Light and start praying to the fire, your, your mind's immediately going to flash over to Dragonstone and how differently they're doing things there. And that's, that's a, that's a notable contrast. And it raises the question about what exactly R'hllor wants out of its followers. If there is, if there was a consciousness that chose Beric for resurrection and that consciousness is also involved with the stuff going on in Volantis, like, is there really a coherent uh, agenda or perspective there? And there's, there's no way of knowing for sure, of course. And I think that's the point. Both the Brotherhood and Team Stannis have access to magical power. What matters is what they choose to do with it. Beric sacrifices himself to protect the least fortunate. Stannis sacrificed himself, or part of himself, to create shadow babies to eliminate his enemies. Thoros is out here in the shit every day, every night full of terrors that Melisandre doesn't have to face, while she is shut away in castles talking about saving the world, but in a very abstract, almost academic way. The Brotherhood is what saving people actually looks like. There's an authenticity to Beric standing there without armor, showing off his wounds for everyone to see. This is what I have done in the name of light and life. Maybe this is what Azor Ahai really ought to look like. Disconnected from the prophecy itself, committed only to righteous action for its own sake. Stannis's Lightbringer looks nice, but as Maester Aemon points out, it gives off no heat. It can't actually sustain you through the winter. Beric's sword gives off a lot of heat. Maybe too much heat. Maybe turn that down. Beric lighting his sword immediately draws curses from the Hound. He abandoned the Lannister cause because of a river of fire, yet now this? A very literal out of the frying pan and into the fire moment. I focus in on the language, flaming sword leap to meet the cold one. Ice and fire, just like the werewoods and children of the forest imagery mashing with Rolor this chapter. Two and a half books in, we are seeing all these little fires George has been stoking start combining with each other, giving real heft to the Song of Ice and Fire title, down to the steel ring on steel giving it that musical quality. Fighting and dancing and fucking all have the same cadence in George's stories. They all mirror each other. He uses words like swirling and springing, Beric's sword kissing the dogs on Sandor's shield. It's one of the most intimate scenes of violence yet. And Gendry, the boy, not my cat, has to tell Arya this isn't wildfire. This is some other devilry. This is magic, Arya thinks. And she's right. She brushed up against magic with Jock and Hagar at Harrenhal. And while the faceless men work differently than the followers of R'hllor in many ways, they have one thing in common. It all comes down to blood. The faceless men use Arya's blood to bond another face to hers. And here, Beric's blood itself is the alchemical fuel for the flame. This is one of George's great images, a shock to the system for the reader who is not prepared for anything like this. As difficult as A Song of Ice and Fire is to adapt, this is one of those cases where you can see George all but writing in stage directions. Everything's unfolding visually. I think about a lot of genre writers I love, like Ruben, you mentioned uh, Tad Williams with uh, Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn earlier, They're, who have a really strong grasp of imagery, but in what 
feels to me like a very kind of static and painterly way. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what I really love about George's imagery is that you can see it all move. He's really thinking through about how everything is unfolding in space in a way that feels strongly influenced by movies, as well as all the ways comic panels suggest the motion of superpowered beings. So George doesn't just describe the fiery sword itself, he describes, like, the, the sunspots, the afterglow you get in your eyes when you look at a bright light, those flashing echoes when you blink. He, he calls them red and yellow ghosts. And that's just, it's such a perfect little detail. It's so, it's, it's mesmerizing to read. It makes you feel like you're, you're there, that your senses are activated, and you're just barely keeping up as, along with Arya, you try to figure out what the hell is happening. Yeah, a great piece of writing advice I heard once was, um, don't tell the reader how the time machine works because the time machine time machines don't work. Uh, <laughs> tell the reader how it feels to use the time machine. Uh -huh. And, you know, George uh, is not himself an expert in medieval sword fighting, but he is, you know, the, the logistics and the details thereof. What he is conveying is a sense of being there, of being close enough to feel the heat. It is, yeah, I mean, it's an incredible scene. It is kinetic. Um, and it is the second of three scenes like that, three formal trials by combat that uh, echo through these pages. Um, in the first of those trials, uh, Brawn against poor Sir Vardis, R.I.P. to a real one, um, Innocence won out. You know, Tyrion didn't do the deed and he walked free. In the third, uh, Oberyn and the Mountain, um, not so lucky. Uh, the, the innocent man will be condemned and the well-meaning man will be squished. This one in the middle um, is a little more ambiguous as to innocence versus guilt. Uh, we're, we're left with a sort of unsatisfying conclusion. Not, you know, from a, a narrative perspective of just reading. It's immensely satisfying uh, and impressive. But I actually I take that back a little bit. I do remember reading this going like, wait, what the hell? The Lightning Lord's dead already? Arya cannot fathom the Hound winning. So when she gets <laughs> So when she gets a chance, she steals Greenbeard's dagger and closes in on the Hound. She'll do it herself if no one else will. Again, back to Arya 5, we talked about how Arya's still building an internal model of justice, from her too short time with her father to the horror she witnesses under the Mountain and Tywin and Roos, and now justice as she's seen exacted by the peoples of Stony Sept and the Brotherhood. It's all a jumble, but in the end, it seems confused to her. All the good people, the ones she loves, die, and their killers walk away scot-free. You can see it developing, the only justice is the one I meet out, stance growing within her, which I think is best played out with the killing of Daron in Bravos in A Feast for Crows. But even as she contemplates knifing the hound, she also feels pity. She watches the flesh melt off Sandor's arm like wax melting on a candle. The phrasing, burned flesh sloughed off his arm, is haunting. A man being physically unmade. Maybe he deserves this. He's the worst, right? He deserves to burn in hell. Right? Right? If Beric is standing in for the archetypal fiery warrior, Prometheus bringing a spark of sun to the people, then Sandor is standing in for ice. That great line about his cold steel clashing against Beric's fire sword emphasizes that, as does Sandor talking about himself as the terror in the night they're praying about, and Melisandre says explicitly that that terror is the others. But Melisandre believes in a rigid, unbreakable binary that defines the world, and what we're seeing here is less black and white. 
Yeah, you kind of have to wonder how Melisandre would view Beric if they met. In the books, not the, you know, the kind of half-assed undermining scene that I think was one of the show's bigger missteps uh, in this content. Would Melisandre be awed by this fiery warrior? Would she at least be impressed? Or would she just wonder why he was wasting his time and his blessings fucking around with poachers and farmers when he's got so much obvious resonance to him? There's an ambiguity even in this scene. Like, Beric is associated with death as well as life. As the duel begins, George describes his face as a death mask. Beric is standing as still as stone, like by spilling his blood on his sword, he has emptied himself of life. George describes the swirling fires around Beric as forming a cage, which cuts both ways. It protects him from Sandor, but it's also a cage, it's a prison, like the fire won't let him escape. Which, as we'll later learn, is how Beric feels about it. He's deliberately courting death in a desire to escape the loop of his second life. And if Sandor stands in for the others, well, he was made an other, in the larger sense, by the fire. That which is light and life for the Brotherhood was pain and suffering for him. Sandor cuts Beric down, the mighty hero, and Arya knows Sandor is guilty of the crime he was on trial for. Even the gods have betrayed her now. If the universe itself is going to mock her desire for justice, what chance is there? She'll have to kill the monster all on her own. But that's a lot harder when the monster is standing there crying, begging for help like a little baby, as Arya thinks. And that's an idea that goes back to the start of the story, that there's a, a child inside every adult. When Waymar Royce got his men killed trying to be a man, only to look in death like the child he was. And it'll repeat again later with Joffrey, uh, you know, one of the, the great, oh yeah, oh no, moments. Uh, George is never going to fully let us off the hook on this, and I don't mean in that sort of edgelordy Mark Millar, ha <laughs> fuck you audience, don't you feel bad kind of way. Uh, it's, it's more thoughtful. Um, you know, we see here the Brotherhood, I talked so much about like, the value and the power of their justice. Uh, they are doing the best with what they have. But in this situation, doing the best with what they have, you know, where does it get them? If the Hound had died, then, well, he'd be dead. We know that that wouldn't change very much, at least as from our privileged position as readers. Uh, and even in his victory, what are we left with? It's George's specific tool here is is vulnerability that he uses it. Probably the biggest example of that is is Jamie. Uh, Theon is close behind, certainly. Where it's he he takes people that are are built up as exploiting other people's vulnerabilities, and then he shows you that they that the that the script can be flipped and their vulnerabilities can be exploited. Like what we see here is the Hound persona breaking down, and beneath it, Sandor is. A little kid again, his face being shoved into fire by the brother he already knew well enough to fear. Just like at the Blackwater, the fire burns down his walls. And, just like with Sansa at the Blackwater, it makes him cry, creating this intimacy you would have sworn was impossible a moment before. The difference is that Sansa already suspected that about Sandor, even if it was at a subconscious level. Arya is totally flabbergasted by this, almost disappointed, because she's invested in Sandor as a fearsome figure. For him to be vulnerable like this shakes up her understanding of what's at stake here. How can he cry, like Micah must have cried? When she looks at the burns on his arm, she can't bring herself to kill him. 
Not because he's innocent, but because of the mercy still in her heart. The same reason she gave water to those men at Stony Sept, despite all the terrible things they did. It, it says as much, if not more, about her than it does about him, really. It's not just his arm, she thinks, but his face. Fully and finally making the connection between what was done to him as a child and what is happening here, now. When Sandor's shield catches fire, he hacks it apart, literally destroying the image of House Clegane. Beric is not the only one being reborn here. Remember what Sandor said to Arya when he realized who she was. Don't you know you're dead? Here they are, reuniting in the literal underground, presided over by a dead lord who serves a dead king. The irony is that at the end of the book, Arya leaves Sandor to die, and everyone assumes he's dead, but he's not. He comes back from the dead, if less literally than Beric, and then he starts digging graves himself. It's a really potent mythology because it intersects with the individual character dramas in such interesting ways. It's never the same story twice, even as you have these elements in common. Yeah, it's really similar between Sandor and Arya that uh, obviously we see less of Sandor's individual journey, but he's taking on aspects of the people he meets along the way. Like Arya, everyone leaves an impression on him, or in this case, takes a piece off of him. But yeah, he, he takes on some of those aspects of... Beric, and we'll see him taking on presumably some aspects of the, the begging brothers as well, and who knows what he takes away from Arya and Sansa. I'm probably the last person on this podcast to speak to any overt Christian religious comparisons here. If Ned Flanders didn't talk about it, then I don't dumb diddly know it. But even I, a filthy pagan, a Hindu-raised atheist, can get the Jesus vibes here. Thoros wrenching the sword out of Beric's clavicle seems akin to pulling Christ off the cross, and he's carried away into a cave where he will emerge three minutes later. I'm a headcanoning the time there. I'm not super qualified either, but this is just profoundly wildly Catholic. We know that, you know, as a, a recovering Catholic, George uh, carries much of that into his work um, in the way he views religion and miracles. I mean, I, the, you know, the, the concept of the miracle, the sort of primal mystery um, at the heart of Catholicism, you know, especially when compared to other Christian denominations, other mainstream Christian denominations anyway. We see a lot of motifs and we just see this idea of uh, religion as a, as a subterranean power, you know, a, a chthonic power um, where despite all the ways in which it has evolved to modernity, there's still some of that, I think, to the Catholic faith that is, you know, uh, inherited from the, the, you know, radical reformers hiding in caves um, in order to practice their faith. Uh, that That's just so, like, beating at the heart of this, burning, one might say. Absolutely. Like I, and I think the, the recovering Catholic angle specifically is what makes this so strong, that George has this real skepticism, I think, for the institution itself, and that comes through, especially through a character like Thoros. But there is, he does, there is clearly a core to the storytelling of Catholicism that he clearly still loves and draws from, that sense of the sublime and even bordering on the occult. Like, he's clearly very interested in that, and he gets a lot of ideas from it. And yeah, this is where Beric really becomes the, the mythic martyr figure we've been hinting at all chapter. And he, I think even more than the the imagery of the resurrection itself, it, it's the dialogue that cements the Catholic pastiche angle here. Arya tells Sandor literally to go to hell. Suffer for your fucking sins already. And Beric says, 
he has. Which is different than in the show, where he says he will. Which works on its own terms, especially as Beric sticks around in the show and bears witness to Sandor going through hell. But I think he has is more powerful. Beric suffers for your sins, and so comes to know them, comes to know you. Jesus is you on some level, or that's the idea anyway. So even though Sandor just killed him, Beric's final word on the subject is one of empathy and understanding, maybe even forgiveness. Sandor has already gone through hell. There is nothing anyone, including Arya, can do to him that will match his suffering. And if that suffering really was redemptive, well, it would have worked by now. The crucible Beric has gone through has left him skeptical of the idea that punishment alone is how you achieve justice. All you're doing is sending people to hell. Arya has witnessed a miracle in this chapter. Multiple miracles, in fact. But she is left no, less satis- but she is left no more satisfied than she was at the start. It's why she ultimately tries to go further than, even than Beric. Embrace the void and become no one. So I think that'll uh, take us into a, a foreshadowing and groundwork for this episode. What do we got here, Ruben? What are we? What are we setting up for what comes next? Uh, well, so much revolves around Beric. Like this chapter, this Arya's story in this book, um, and a lot of the Riverland, every camera on the Riverlands, it's all revolving around Beric Dondarrion, the Lightning Lord, uh, and that foreshadows what happens when he's gone. He is a, a very load-bearing character in a lot of ways. Um, so we're seeing him, you know, as this source of justice, both literally and symbolically for his followers. Uh, and, you know, when you kick the chair out from under them, um, you get the noose. But at the same time, what he leaves behind, the story of the Lightning Lord and the reality of it, is enough to inspire people to carry on in his name. Uh, Lennon walks around the world, you know. Beric dies for real, and Lady Stoneheart takes over. But not entirely. We there, So there's an implication um, in the way that the uh, character glossary, and I believe either feast or dance is laid out, that the Brotherhood has split into two factions. One group of them is listed separately, and we also don't see any of them when Brienne re-encounters the Brotherhood. Um, and that group actually includes some of the more sympathetic and potentially moral characters. Um, Angi, Angi is among them, um, a character who is ultimately uh, a, a just a on the older edge of child soldier. Uh, and, of course, their leader, possibly, is young Ned Dane. Um, another piece of foreshadowing in this chapter, uh, the introduction of Ned, who I think, whether with the original sort of extended timeline or the five-year gap, might have been a character who is intended to matter very much, right? Like, he's a Dane. Danes are, like, big... They've, they've got big flashing plot signs over them every time we meet one. Um, and, you know, he's later has these significant conversations with Arya. He's the first person we meet who has any theory as to who John's uh, mother is in a scene that has nothing to do with John or his parentage. It's just out of nowhere. Uh, and George puts Ned there in part to do that. And I don't know, what else do you think Ned Dane was and is intended to do? I think if he, if he was going to be aged up to proper adult status, he might have been supposed to wield Dawn at some point in a particularly plot-important way. He Maybe he was supposed to be central to how 
John actually finds out about his parentage, although George has always kept Hal and Reed kind of in his back pocket. Uh, again, like in The Simpsons, the little guy hasn't done anything yet. Look mm-hmm. at him. You know he's going to do something, and you know it's going to be good. He's small. He's pocket-sized. Exactly. He can fit in there. Yeah, the, the Danes are very interesting in that way, in that they are clearly fascinating to George in a way that seems to extend just beyond the obvious role of red herring for John's parentage. But as the writing process has gone on, it's just become increasingly unclear what that role is. And now and now we have Ario Hota, who I think exists as a POV character in part just so George can finally get someone to Starfall and try to try to wrap this situation up. But yeah, so that Stoneheart is very useful in that way in that she lets lets the more kind of angelic characters from the Brotherhood split off to to form their own faction. Yeah, there's something almost to uh, the Dondarian heraldry here because a lightning can be interpreted as a crack and it's literally a single crack across a field of purple and it kind of like portends the fracturing of the Brotherhood with mm-hmm. the loss of Beric. Um, as for Ned Dane himself, I'm as clueless as the rest of you. Um, I... I think, you know, perhaps it'd be better if Ned Dane wielded Dawn instead of the Dark Star, mostly because the Dark Star is, you know, he's a fun character, but he's not one that I imagine is going to be very important to the end Game of Thrones. And if there... No, there's a for you. <laughs> Excellent point. Dark Star yeah, is the Gucci. That... You are 100% correct. But I think there is a lot of mystery, as you say, wrapped up with the Danes, especially in relationship to the Starks. And considering that we... We just have so much Ned Stark, Ashara Dane parallels. We have everything with Dawn and Arthur Dane. It just feels like Ned Dane is somehow going to circle back to the Starks long term. Yeah, I can I can see that. And I think in the meantime, he also just adds a little note of mystery to this chapter. Um, obviously, the mystery of like, who's this kid named Ned? Uh, the sort of frisson we all get when we hear the name, like you said earlier, and then just... Um, the Danes are a sort of mystical family. They they have these potentially pre-Andal, pre-Roinish origins. Uh, they have a cool magic sword. They have the greatest knight in the world um, in their recent history. And that just, I think, adds to the atmosphere uh, in this cave as if it needed any, any more portents. Yep, think it's almost like he's a ghost of Ned for a second, and the Danes have that. Again, Ashara is described literally as haunting, like she's she's uh, there to kind of whis- whisper from the backstory and stand in for the the, the stories that aren't getting told. So, uh, shifting over to theory and discussion, I'll throw it back on on the guest once more. What do you got for us, Ruben? Um, I guess just a, a discussion point about Barrack being resurrected at the end of the chapter. Um, I can't remember my reaction, like, you know, 20 years ago at this point. Um, how clear was it to you guys, if you recall, uh, that Beric had just died and come back to life? Because I will say on reread, like, it's very much written that way. But also, I don't know, you know, even even at that point, even at the, you know, two and a half books into Song of Ice and Fire, having seen Ned and a host of others die, uh, the pre-Red Wedding, um... I was not inured to the hope spot, and the idea of Beric somehow surviving that was like, maybe? I don't know. I I don't know. What do you guys think? 
Um, well, I famously am very bad at reading. I guess I probably inherited that from my predecessor on this podcast. I'm the guy who thought uh, Littlefinger killed Ned Stark when he put the blade to his neck in the throne room. Um, I didn't pick up all the clues that Bran and Rickon were probably alive near the end of A Clash of Kings. So for me here, I kind of almost like, oh, he was hurt, hurt, but he wasn't like killed. Like it took a second for all that stuff to process and just kind of like contextualizing is like, well, that seems like a weird place to leave the chapter. Let, let, let me take a little closer look at that. But I think it really took maybe getting to Arya 7 and then kind of thinking about it a little bit more than like, ah, he was resurrected. Thankfully, I had all sorts of friends who had tumblers out there and I was able to check on, say, a poor Quentin or nobody suspects the butterfly. And I probably was able to piece back um, the actual truth with some help from some secondary sources. I I remember just being kind of punch drunk at this point in the chapter my first time through just because so much had happened so quickly and I was, was just so excited by all of it. Um, so it was definitely a shock when Beric was alive because, yeah, like, you know, with the, the sword going to his chest and the blood coming out of his mouth, it definitely it definitely sounds like he's dead, which he is. But I my first time through, I think I was just willing to roll with it and I wasn't I wasn't looking for the rug pull. I wasn't looking for the, you know, that part of the magic trick. Um, which is what makes it so effective. So I definitely remember my skin crawling in the next Arya chapter when the great bit, when Lem just says, yeah, Thoros healed him. There's no better healer. And Beric just looks at him like the most exhausted man on earth and goes, yeah, no better healer. Uh-huh, go do your job, Lem. And then he, Lem walks away and just Thor, Beric turns to Thoros and goes, how many times have you brought me back now? And I do remember reading that and going, oh, okay. So this is literally what you're doing. And that's just great because it's not in that moment. It's not, it's not an awe-inspiring, sublime thing. It's just Beric is so fucking tired and has lost track of how many times we've even done this. And it's like Thoros, this is all your fault. After six resurrections, the only thing that remains is dedication to the cause and just being kind of tired. Exactly, of just which is great because like yeah, Lem is just because Lem is one of the guys. I've forgotten until I reread this chapter. Lem is one of the guys who goes with Thoros when they drag Beric's body out of there. So he presumably is watching it happen when Thoros does his little trick. And he's still telling himself, yep, that is some good CPR there, Thoros. You are the best at this. Because the alternative is admitting to himself that he's serving a zombie, which I think, even if it's a zombie you love, might freak you out a little bit. The zombies we love. The zombies we love. Yeah, Jon Snow and the zombies we love. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just to, to wrap that discussion, I, I ultimately, like, I don't remember my reaction, um, as I said, or, or whether or not I tweaked to it. And I think that's really just what probably happened was that I kept reading because it was just so powerful. It was a kinetic chapter. And even after the fight was over, we were still in the fireworks factory. Uh-huh. You know, I... Holy crap, it's Beric Dondarrion. Holy crap, Beric's dead? Holy crap, Beric's alive! Like, I wasn't going to ask any questions. Like Lem, I was just going to keep on going, um, because it was just so incredibly compelling, uh, and the the details could be filled in later. Couldn't agree more. So I, uh, I think that is going to wrap us up for A Storm of Swords, Arya 6. Thank you so much for coming on, Ruben. This was just a blast. This was uh, I was looking forward to it, and it was just as much fun as I had hoped. I had an incredible time. Uh, I am so glad I got to just join you guys in general. It's uh, a great time. But this chapter, uh, hey, hey, you know, it's it, it's like uh, getting to, um, hey, you, uh, you want to, you know, come on stage, join us for a song? Um, 
we're gonna play won't get fooled again you know? <laughs> absolutely <laughs> or insert here <laughs> Um, and thank you everyone for listening as always if you want to uh, drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice we really appreciate that it helps people find us you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast ASOIIF where our patrons get early access exclusive episodes and a bunch more benefits you can follow us on Twitter at notacast ASOIIF or shoot us an email at notacast ASOIIF at gmail.com and you can find me at Quentin on Twitter and I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find our just wrapped coverage of Metal Gear Solid over at Podcasts on Frontiers, as well as our ongoing coverage of Andor over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Uh, and I'm Ruben Polling, and something that I should have plugged at the top of this episode and will plug now is that by the time this comes out, I will have uh, at least the first episode up of Bodies by the Docks, a podcast reviewing uh, and rereading Joe Abercrombie's first law trilogy and other works set in that world. If you're not familiar, it's a fantasy series that came out in the wake of Song of Ice and Fire uh, and definitely shares a lot of DNA. I'm going to be covering these books with my friend Hannah, formerly of All Comics Considered, uh, someone who I could not be more thrilled about going on this journey with. So yeah, um, if you have read Joe Abercrombie, please listen to Bodies by the Docks wherever you get your podcasts. If you have not read Joe Abercrombie, please gird your loins and do so. <laughs> it gets pretty nasty in there, though. Uh, and then apart from Bodies by the Docks, you can also find me on Twitter at Lies and Perfidy, where I will occasionally talk about fantasy and science fiction, and also uh, like very abstruse basketball complaints. The best kind, the best kind. Uh, that's so great about Bodies by the Ducks. That's so awesome. I can't wait to listen to it. So yes, everyone definitely check that out as soon as it gets rolling. And uh, my most recent Lord of the Rings episode covering, again, another very Catholic chapter, uh, the House is a Healing chapter in Lord of the Rings. That is up for all our $5 and above patrons. My next Star Wars episode is going to be out next week, also for all $5 and above patrons. And then in a couple weeks' time, next time on A Song of Ice and Fire, Catelyn finally bids farewell to her beloved father. But cheer up, Cat. I hear wedding bells. Somehow that chapter has even more ghosts than this chapter, because just about everyone's going to die in there. That is what I reread that one just a couple days ago, and that is like the saddest chapter. Everyone spends the whole chapter like crying and drunk and angry at each other. It's amazing. Crying and drunk and angry at each other, and we're not even at the actual wedding yet. <laughs> That's how you know it's going to be a good one. So uh, thank you so much for listening, everyone, and we will see you in a couple weeks' time for A Storm of Swords, Cattle and Four.